0: This is Jocko podcast number 284 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Anybody home? Right from the very threshold of our bungalow reached us a hoarse voice of an elderly gentleman. The voice woke us up at high noon of our first day amid the date palms of the settlement outside Saddam's palace somewhere at the outskirts of Baghdad. Hi, guys. This greeting that followed sounded a bit warmer our shared English proved to be good enough so we were able to freely exchange greetings with our visitor and learn what he wanted from us or rather as it turned out what that older feller could do for us in our Iraqi reality my name is Posey Bill Posey and I am the boss here he introduced himself to us clad in an American uniform, pants, and a brown t-shirt. In case you need anything, lads, just bring me the list and I'll take care of it. That was how Bill Posey greeted us. At one time, he might have been a strapping lad indeed. But in spite of age, he lost nothing of his military appearance and his advanced age only dignified him. He brought us a box full of batteries. In this climate, they run out no time, guys, and you'll... Generally operate at night. Each of you must have a large supply of them. He explained putting the box on the table That is how I remember my first encounter with Bill Posey Our visitor turned out to be one of the oldest if not the oldest Navy SEALs to serve in combat in that legendary US Navy unit his vast experience and involvement impressed people and he used his age to his advantage Bill Posey's knowledge on military bases, how they work, like ours in Baghdad, seemed unlimited. Bill Posey volunteered with the US Navy at a time when most young American males did their best to steer clear of military service. Some of his civilian friends even faked injuries or feigned joint problems, fearing fit for duty opinion of the draft board, which would have meant an unwanted conscription. But no wonder. In the late 1960s, Indochina was the scene of the brutal Vietnam War. And after all, not every young guy had a warrior's soul. During his service in the UDT, underwater demolition teams in Vietnam, Posey, with other UDT men and SEALs, took part in many combat missions and patrols. In later time, he also secured the landing of Apollo 12. But when he volunteered to the first Gulf War in 1990, the medical board rejected him, saying he was too old for further duty. However, in 2003, he deployed to Baghdad. He built the camp infrastructure from scratch, took care of our supplies, and he was also an expert on our vehicles. And he was a very generous man. He raised money on the base for a Catholic orphanage in Baghdad. But he also remained a warrior until the last days of his service, including taking part in combat operations. The guy was devoted to the fight and to his teammates throughout his entire career. No wonder, then, that our base in Baghdad was named after him, Camp Posey. Camp Jenny Posey, to be exact. Bill Posey had a daughter who was also in the service, but in the army. He said that since the commanding officer desired to name the base Camp Posey after him, he humbly let it be named in honor not of him, but of his daughter. Hence, the full name of our base was Camp Jenny Posey. And that right there was an excerpt from a book, which is actually called Camp Posey, written by... Polish special operations soldier from the Grom named Naval Polska. And this part of the book about the Polish special operations unit, working with SEALs in Iraq, this is the book that I talked about when I had my brother Tom Drago Zoran on here for podcast 276. And that book by Naval Polska is called Camp Posey. And as you heard, Camp Jenny Posey was named after the daughter of the Vietnam-era Frogman Warrant Officer Bill Posey, who fought in Vietnam, recovered the Apollo 12 space capsule, and who ultimately built Camp Jenny Posey in Baghdad and did combat operations with the SEALs and the Grom in Iraq. And we are lucky enough to have this legend here with us tonight. UDT, SEAL Team, Vietnam, Iraq, Frogman, and legend, Warrant Officer, Bill Posey, he's here. Warrant, Bill, thanks for coming on.
1: Commander, it's always great being here. I thought you weren't going to call me Jocko, and now you're calling me Commander. I guess I wasn't
0: supposed to call you Warrant.
1: uh, (laughs) You know, old habits die very slowly, and uh, at Group 1, where I was at uh, a lot of the time, we really respected you and your ability to lead and your ability to push things through. So uh, you were a legend at group one, uh, not Bill Posey. I was only a legend in my own mind.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes I got in trouble for pushing things through, but it was okay. So let's, talk, let's start at the beginning. I mean, this is a pretty awesome story for you to spend so much time in the teams and so much time just keeping the, keeping the brotherhood on the path. But it started, you, you grew up in, in California, right? Yes, Linwood, California. Yes, sir. And what was the situation there?
1: Um, you know, it, 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 when I grew up, it was after World War II. We were the first part of the uh, baby boom. So it was really nothing but optimism, especially in Southern California, because there was nothing here. There was hardly any people, especially in the Los Angeles area. So everything just blew out of the ground. And it was an amazing place to be there. You know, we could surf. The freeways went in. So some days we could surf in the morning and then get an afternoon lift ticket up at Big Bear and ski in the afternoon. How can you beat that? Living the dream. Yeah, you could surf, you could ski. They had beautiful women. I mean, what more does a man want? I mean, it's the place.
0: Uh, my kid, my son, as soon as he got his driver's license, he was on that mission. And it's a lot easier now. Even though the traffic's worse, guess what? They got night skiing up there. Yeah, there you go. So he's like, oh, surfing in the morning? Going <laughs> night skiing at night <laughs> on the same plan. <laughs> Where, so you, you mentioned um, the baby boomers. So was, what about your, your dad? Was your dad in, in the military?
1: Uh, yeah, my dad was in the Navy. He came from Victoria, Texas uh, to Long Beach, and he was on a, a ship called the USS Cummings. And he was stationed out of Long Beach and then did the South Pacific. He met my mother in Southern California. He took my mother after he married her to Victoria, Texas, and said, this is where I want to go. And she says, no, we're not going to Victoria, Texas. We're staying in Southern California. No so, air conditioning at that time. Oh, so man. it was rough. Total game changer. Yes, sir.
0: So when uh, what, what was your dad's war experience like on the USS uh, Cummings? He,
1: he was a gunner uh, on the deck of the ships, and he was a bosun's mate. So... That's what he did, and he was in a couple of big battles there. And they didn't sink him, so that's good. So he, he had a very positive, and my mother also, who worked for the Navy, had a very positive uh, idea of the Navy, and that kind of bled over to me. Mm-hmm. So,
0: And then what, what did your dad do after the Navy? Did, did, did he get out after the war?
1: Yes, sir. Got out after the war and immediately went to work for the telephone company for 40 years. Was a lineman, or what was he yeah, doing there? Yeah, guy that climbs the poles. Just getting it his yeah, whole life. Yeah. So, he he was a very good guy and a very hard worker. Really a hard working guy. So I tried to be as much as like him as possible. The week before he died, he was 82 years old, and he was climbing a ladder on a second story painting the eaves of my da- uh, his <laughs> daughter's house. So I'm in 82. That's pretty good, huh? <laughs>
0: Not no slowing down. I guess we know where you got your (laughs) (laughs) genetics from. (laughs) So then you're growing up and this is like just prime kind of prime America in Southern California. You got you got surfing. Where are you going surfing at?
1: Uh, You know, we did it all up and down the coast from Santa Barbara to San Diego because it was easy to do, and gas was like 29 cents a gallon, so we could do whatever we wanted, just leave early in the morning. And there was hardly any crowds, especially what really changed surfing was the type of material they used in surfboards. Mm -hmm. So originally they used an epoxy. Well, originally it was balsa wood, but that was before my time. But when foam came out, they had the foam, but it was a polyester foam, and if you wanted to resin it, you would have to either put tar or paper over the, res- over the uh, surfboard blank. Mm-hmm. So it was very difficult to do. And you always had voids where the uh, resin went down into the uh, surfboard material and you had a void. So when the polyurethane came out, that revolutionized the sport. Game changer. Yeah, it was easy to do, much stronger, much lighter. It, was, it changed the sport of surfing.
0: So what years were you in high school? What, what year did you graduate from high school?
1: Uh, 65, 61 through 65.
0: And so you're going to high school, and I mean, Vietnam hadn't started yet until well, it just barely, probably just started yep. to hear about it in 65?
1: Yeah, no, it was going okay then, and everybody thought, well, we can kind of tiptoe around it and do other things uh, to avoid the work, because nobody wanted to, to go, because you know the draft was on and it was a different type of military so typically if you were drafted you were drafted in the army very few people into the marine corps none in the navy or the air force so you would go into the army you would go to vietnam you would come back in a plastic bag Mm -hmm. so it wasn't a good deal you know they just didn't think it through and it wasn't a good deal for draftees Mm -hmm.
0: so when you're going to high school Were you thinking about the military as you were going to high school? No,
1: not at all. We are thinking about how we can avoid the military. (laughs) (laughs) It was a negative sense rather than positive.
0: And you were kind of like a motorhead, right?
1: Yeah. I, I always turned to wrench from the time I was a little kid. I was always building cars or building different things so I was really happy in that world.
0: So give us I mean give us the highlights. What was the what was the uh, prize? What were the what were the beauties? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I had a low budget low ditch uh, car. I had a 55 Chevy with a 31 Ford front end on it uh, the axle and everything with a 348 and a Muncie 4-speed. So I thought I was a cat's meow uh, on Tweedy Boulevard. We had this street called Tweedy Boulevard where everybody cruised, right? And it was the longest dead-end street in the world, and everybody would cruise on it, and, you know, you'd see all your girlfriends, and, you know, it was really good. I mean, it was like, I don't know what that movie was with Ron Howard, but, I mean, it was much more uh, was fun. It di- was it Diner? No, No. uh, God, I can't remember that movie with Ron Howard. I know the one you're talking about. it was in the 50s, and it really looked good in the movies. But the 50s were really better than that because it was the optimism of the 40s and the 50s that America can do it all. We can do it scientifically, and our lives will be forever better, and there will never be a downtime. Because my father was a Depression-era kid, right? Mm -hmm. And they had completely different values. Than we had in the 50s because we thought there was no end. I mean, we could do whatever we wanted. Nobody in my family, extended family in Texas and in California, had ever been to college. Nobody. So I tell my father when I graduate from high school, he says, well, I want you to go to work for the telephone company. It's a great job, and you can work the job for 40 years, right? I said, Dad, I'm not I'm not going to be hanging from some telephone pole in South Central Los Angeles. That was his specialty because he could get so much overtime. And I said, I'm not doing that. He says, you know, you're really not very bright. I don't think you're going to make it into college. Well, he was right there, but, you know, what can you say?
0: Did you play any sports or anything in high school?
1: Yeah, I, I did the good SEAL team sports. I played water polo, swam, and did cross country and track. So it was real good, it was really kind of prophetic uh, doing those sports and being able to do, you know, CLT, mm-hmm. or UDT at the time. Uh,
0: were, were, what kind of music were you listening to?
1: You know, typical Southern California, Beach Boy, Jan and Dean. Um, it, it, I, I, you know, I tell, I'm a school teacher now, mm-hmm. and the kids have a lot of problems now. I mean, they have a lot of interpersonal problems, right? And I tell them about my experience, and they look at me, and wow. I mean, it was the greatest, in my opinion, the greatest time ever to be alive. Well, since
0: you work with kids now, like, what's the difference? Hmm. I mean, I was thinking from, from you're talking about cars, right? Yes, sir. And when you have cars, like a 1955 car, that's a car that any, well, most people right. can look at and fully understand what's Absolutely. happening. Absolutely. You it's don't have, there's, there's no magic to it. That's right. And now you open up the hood of a just, new car.
1: Just like your point in the book. <laughs> if you make it simple, everybody understands, yeah. right? Yeah.
0: And it seems like the cars back then, if there was a problem with it, you could pretty Absolutely. easily identify what the problem was and be like, oh, Fix it's it. a carburetor or right. whatever. And we just get that thing fixed. But now it's hard to even tell there's so many complications yes. inside of a car that, it seems like kids these days also are faced with all these different complications, as opposed to, hey, um, you know, this is what we're going to go surfing and then we're going to go to Big Bear. We're going to go skiing. That sounds like a kind of things you want to deal with as a kid. Right. Now they're dealing with social media, peer pressure, right. and all this other crap.
1: Yeah, it's a much harder life. It's much more difficult. And I see a lot of these kids in my line of work being really stressed out by other kids, especially the girl-on-girl situation where one's chiding or bullying the others, you know, and, and the beauty of it is, and I don't know if you experienced this in your high school, but the beauty of it is if we were mad at somebody, we'd go out in the parking lot and duke it out. Not that I was a big fighter because I was as big as round as a pencil, you know? But I mean, <laughs> but that taught, you know, that fight, that fist fight in the parking lot, and I don't want my kids at school fist fighting because I'd get fired, but that, that little uh, fight in the parking lot really earned uh, respect from your peers and it taught you, hey, I can't be bad-mouthing these guys because he's going to sucker punch me and, and, and straighten me out. So, but they don't have that now, you know. And I've been at my high school for eight years, and I've never seen one fight.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. It's just a different mindset. I'm sure at your high school, was there a fight or oh, two? Oh, yeah, and, there's fights. Yeah. And
0: and not to mention, you get into a SEAL platoon, and there's
1: like a fight
0: every 14 minutes. <laughs> if you need it or not. <laughs> yeah, someone's getting hit. Someone's getting choked. Someone's getting <laughs> pommeled. That's just the way it is. <laughs> So you, you, uh, you grow up there in Southern California, kind of just straight up living the dream. Yes, sir. Sounds yeah. outstanding.
1: And I got a job when I was 15 and a half in a grocery store, and it was everything was unionized then. So I started at 90 cents an hour, which was big money for a 15-year-old kid. So I was able some weeks when I was a senior in high school, I made more than my father who had been at his job for 20 years, right? And so I could buy so many car parts it was unbelievable (laughs) never saved a dime was i was i smart (laughs) if i'd have saved 10 percent of that i'd have been living in san diego right now (laughs) so you
0: so you uh as you're getting ready to graduate you know you're not going to college
1: no i went to college for two years you did yeah okay i went to college and college was very difficult then because everybody was trying to cheat the draft So classes didn't have 25 people in it. They had 50, you know, and you would beg the instructor to take you into the class because if not, if you went below 12 units, then you're open fodder for the draft. So I always tried to take 15 or 18 units just in case I had to back out. So I went to college because I wanted to be 21 when I went to service so I could drink legally, right? So that was my goal, to be 21 and to be in the service.
0: I thought the drinking age was eighteen back then.
1: No, not in California. Oh. Not in California. In Texas, it was, but not in California.
0: When I joined the Navy, in the the drinking age was twenty one, but at the E Club yeah. on NAB Coronado, you could drink at eighteen.
1: But you couldn't drink at the trade winds, got the team it. bar. Yeah, you couldn't it. go to the team bar, right? <laughs> so, yes. If you couldn't go, a so SEAL team guy, not more, in a team bar. You were bar? thinking
0: way more strategic <laughs> than I was.
1: <laughs> strategic thinker. I mean, come on.
0: <laughs> so, you, so you get done with. So now, it's, so you graduate high school in 1965. You go to two year. What college did you go to? Compton. And and you're studying what? Are you studying anything? You,
1: Auto mechanics.
0: Oh, so you're just getting into it.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to perfect my. Uh, my ability to fix things.
0: Are you racing cars?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean just street racing. Illegal street <laughs> racing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and and what car are you driving now? Did you graduate from the 55? Oh no,
1: no. I, the 55 Chevy took a lot of different engines and different drivetrain setups and stuff like that. So it was good for me.
0: And then at what point did you start thinking, "All right, I'm not going to be able to Was it did you make it to 21 before you got before yes. you joined the navy, so you made uh, it to twenty one.
1: No, in nineteen sixty six, I joined the navy because the draft was closing in. As they needed more men, um, you had different steps. So if you had, if you were married, then you avoided the draft. If even in, if you were going to school, but you weren't willing to make that kind of crazy no 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 commitment. no. no. Not, <laughs> you weren't that Let, desperate Let's get nuts, yet. right? I mean, that, yeah,
0: it, you it, weren't willing to go that distance. You know, when
1: the women in Southern California at that time were incredible. Incredible. And you grew up where the women always took the pill. Well, that's not true because the pill came out in the early 60s, but nobody took it for a while. So when the pill came about, it was a whole new, different social scene. And, you know, everybody got their jihad on, (laughs) if you know what I mean. And so it it was very fruitful to be a, a. a young man and a young woman in Southern California in 1965,
0: and so so you're so you're getting your your jihad on, yeah. and and then, so what? Well, at what point are you? Did you say you joined the navy?
1: Yeah, we joined a, in 1966. The draft was closing in, and everybody had tried to get into a National Guard unit or a reserve unit. So there was nothing left because everybody of draft eligibility did that. So I went into the submarine submarine reserves, which was the least desirable of any reserves, right, because you had to go into the submarine. And so I did that, and uh, that proved uh, my gateway to go into SEAL team. I'm going to tell you the little story, if you wouldn't mind, Commander. So I'm on the ship, and I'm turning a wrench, right? I wanted to be in the engine room because I wanted to see how those, you know, the diesel motor was probably uh, 15 feet long. And it was a real good learning experience because I learned a lot of things about diesel. But the problem is you couldn't take a shower in the submarine because there was no – in the showers, they had potatoes because there was no room. We had about 85 people on the submarine. There was no room for anything, including the shower. So you were out to sea for two weeks at a time. And as an engine man, you were really greasy. uh, And you could wash yourself, but you couldn't really get yourself clean. So uh, you, you get in your rack and you put your face on your pillow and, you know, you wake up in four hours for your next gig and your face is so greasy that your, your face slid off the pillow, right? And I didn't like to be greasy. I didn't mind muddy or dirty, but greasy, it, it's, it's not good, you know, and you had pimples on your face. And this is the worst part. So we used to go to a bar down here in San Diego. I can't even remember the name of the the, the boat bar. And you'd walk in and people would smell you before they would see you because it was a snorkel submarine where they, the, the boat snorkeled to recharge the batteries and it permeated everything with diesel fuel. So you smell like diesel fuel. So people would, you walk in the bar, people would sniff and say, oh my God, where did this guy come from? I mean, you're perfectly clean. I mean, your skin's clean, but you just stink like diesel fuel, right? So, after a, you know a little while on that submarine, I went to the Cobb, the chief of the boat, and I said, "Cobb, you know I, i'm I'm really not a quitter; this is a volunteer service in the submarine. I want to go to the army I'll, the army's good because I can sit in the mud, and the mud you wash off and you don't stink right so
0: so you're in the you're in the Navy reserves at this point, but are right, you but, I'm activated. but you're active after duty yes, so sir. you join the reserves." You go through boot camp. Yes. But you're Summary active duty. boot camp. You, but you're active duty, so you you don't have any break. You're straight up. You When you joined, you joined.
1: No, you, you had as long as you wanted to kind of fake it in the reserves, but usually it's a two-year gig. So that's why I joined. And then when I was 21, it worked out my time schedule perfectly, right? So then, then you were activated.
0: Got it. And then... You went—was submarine boot camp actually different than regular oh, yeah. Navy it, boot camp?
1: No, it was up at uh, Hunter's Point in San uh, San Francisco, and the Marines would drill you, and they tried to instill discipline, and it was like a nine-week school. It's because you, you went to boot camp, but you only learned about submarines, because you're a detriment when you go on that diesel submarine—you know, submarines from World War II, not nukes, but diesel boats—and— if you don't, if you turn the wrong valve, it could be the wrong. You know, it could be all over for the entire summary. You got to know what you're doing when you're on a submarine. So we went to that boot camp, and then the and next. You, summer, did you
0: not? Did you not put two and two together on what it meant to be on a submarine? Because <laughs> I wasn't the sharpest tool in to the shed, but I knew there's one thing I didn't want. To do. God bless the guys that are on submarines. Oh, absolutely. It's a jo- Look, I've spent probably my whole Navy career. Probably spent a month on a submarine yes, total, sir. maybe a month and a half. And it doesn't take much to figure out that it's a special it's a different breed of That's human right. being that goes right. on there and can special deal with it. Person. Because you're in a confined space. You know, there's someone that sleeps in your bed when right. you're not sleeping in your hot bed, racking. hot racking. Right. Yeah. It's called hot racking, Echo Charles. So mm-hmm. this is the deal. Echo, they only have so many beds. They have more people than they have beds. So when it's your turn to go to sleep, Someone you share a bed with someone, or maybe two people, so you get to sleep for six hours. And then when you get out of bed, someone else is getting into your bed, it's warm, mm-hmm. right? So, this is just it's not normal, it's not normal, it's not. And we, and the they're just team, as
1: greasy as you. Oh man, not <laughs> greasier, yeah.
0: And, and and everything is confined, you know, and you do, literally don't see the sun. And so it's a, di- so I'm just wondering, you didn't, f- you didn't think to myself, you didn't think to yourself, oh, well, I'm going to be on a freaking aluminum can underneath the ocean for months <laughs> at a time. Maybe that's not the right deal.
1: Yeah, but that was just, you know, all my friends, not, most of my friends joined the submarine reserves. And so then they went on the submarines. So that, that's just the way it was. Mm-hmm. Anything and to avoid the Army.
0: How long did you spend on, in the submarine oh, service then? A month
1: and a half. <laughs> not long at all. Not long at all.
0: So after a month and a half of smelling it. like diesel yeah. and being stuck underwater, you went to the chief of the boat.
1: Right. Went to and the And that's co- where I
0: cut you off, where you, where, yes, where you went to him and said, said all right, I'm he, done.
1: You know, I, I, just, I just don't like it, and I'm not the right guy to be this, you know. And he says, Posey, do I have a deal for you? He says, you go down and take this test this afternoon at uh, 12 o'clock, and you can be a SEAL team guy. And I said, well, nobody knew, because this is 1967. Nobody knew what it meant, right, what SEAL Team was. And I thought, well, SEAL Team, well, they have SEALs. I thought, SEALs. And uh, I said, well, does that mean that you train SEALs and to do tricks for recruiting? And he says, they'll explain it to you. So I go over to a part of the base and they put a hard hat outfit on me. And the first test was to drop you over the side of the ship in the bay. And you walk around on the bottom of the, of the bay for a half hour to see if you're claustrophobic. And so they dropped me over at the side. And they, uh, you know, I walk around for a half hour in the mud. You walk through the mud. You know, you, and
0: this is in the old school, like, what is it, the Mark 8 dive helmet thing? Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, you know. It, it was real old school. <laughs> it's real old yeah. school. <laughs> and so he and did that. And that was part of the examination. <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> did you have the big-ass lead, like, oh, yeah. boots on the oh, whole yeah. nine yards? Yeah, yeah,
1: And, and you couldn't. You so. had to shuffle the boots, not <laughs> walking them. So all of the sediment that's been there for 150 years, I mean, you took one step and you couldn't see for the next five minutes, you know? So they had me walking around. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then what else do they do with you?
1: Oh, then then they pull you up, and they, I said, hey, I passed the test. What do I, Where do I go? What do I do? And they said, well, you have to take the other test. And I said, oh, okay. And nobody knew what SEAL team was, right? So I, I talked to the guy there, and he was a dive guy. And I said, well, what's SEAL team? And he says, man, it's the greatest. You go down to San Diego. You lay on the beach. You are a lifeguard for Marines who make marine landings at, uh, at um, uh, Camp Pendleton, right? And you have a girl under each arm, and in each hand, you have a beer. And the Navy buys you beer. He said, really? The Navy buys you beer? Yeah. And these girls are gorgeous. They're, they're wonderful down in San Diego. Said, man, that's the life for me. That's what I want to be, right? So you didn't know because there's no internet. There's no books. I think Men with Green Faces was his first book, if I'm not mistaken, from World War II. And I checked that out of the library, and that didn't, you know, you, you didn't know what you got there. So you just didn't know, which was, I think, a, a plus.
0: Mm-hmm. Where were you, Where were you stationed when all this was happening?
1: Long Beach. Okay. So then they transfer me to San Diego and I go to the team area the Friday before training starts and I go there and oliveira I don't know if you ever heard of Mm -hmm. him, he's my uh, proctor and I show up at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon and he says, where you been? I said, well, they just brought me in the bus here. I I don't know what to do. And he says, uh, I said, what do I do? What do you want me to do? Uh, Do I need a book bag? Because I thought it was a school. I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and he says, no, 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 you don't need a book bag. You just show up Monday morning. We're going to take care of you. I said, really? <laughs> yeah. So I go over. At that time, we had three Quonset huts at the end of Coronado, at the end of the base. And I go there, and he gets me a rack. And so I'm sitting there the weekend, and these guys come in, and they tell me what's happening. I say, oh, okay. It is what it is, right? I'm not in the Army, so I'm pretty happy. So that's how it, it just all started. Then it started going downhill Monday morning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what was the wake-up call like Monday morning? So you had no idea. Not a clue. You didn't know it was going to be physical. You no. didn't know nothing about Hell Week, no. nothing. You nothing. just thought you were going to a Navy school where you are going to learn about whatever. Right. Some random Demolition
1: thing. and that type of thing, diving. And it would be nothing where you ran or swam or whatever.
0: So what in your mind as you start getting physically and mentally abused at a high level on monday morning what made you decide okay well i'll just stick with it
1: hey you know i'd been in that see the motivation is i'd been in that submarine and there was no way in god's green earth that i was going to go back to that summary they're going to have to kill me i was not going back to that summary no way so how did the training kick off um You know, it was just physical training and evaluation, and they gave us the test, the SEAL team test, and everybody passed it. And back then, we had eight-count burpees in with the, Mm -hmm. you know, run, floor exercise, and the swim. So, but it was, you know, I was half the man I I am now, so it was (laughs) a lot easier uh, to uh, to pass the What class were you in? Uh, originally 44, then 45, and then 46.
0: So you got rolled a few times.
1: Yeah, I got mumps the first time. What the hell? What's, what's that? M- mumps, it's a disease, a childhood disease <laughs> uh-huh. from the 50s that they have inoculation. Your kids got the shot. Right, so you didn't get the shot and you randomly got oh, it? No, there was no shot then. Got it. And then the second time I got encephalitis <clears throat> uh, from the bay, from the dirty water, and then they gave me some drugs, and I got over that in about four weeks, and the third time I was ready to go. Then I knew what was going on, you know. So,
0: how far did you make it on each of those previous occasions? Two
1: weeks, and then three weeks, and then away. You know, forty-six. I was good.
0: <laughs> and did you did you start to understand what the mission was that you were getting yourself into? Yeah,
1: because people explained it. You know, we had uh, extensive training at the Trade Winds. <laughs> of uh, of what was happening and how things went down so uh then you got it you got you understood what's going on you know in that time it was much different than it is now because the the navy controlled everything you were a navy asset all funding came from the navy as from not from socom or being a national asset like in seal team six so it's always where the money comes from what you know how they dictate your life and so we were like the dog in the manger, UDT, even SEAL team, because the Navy, you know, we were poison to the Navy. If mm-hmm. you wanted to make any headway, you had to be a surface naval officer uh, to make any headway because we never had an admiral. We never had anybody, I believe. Well, I think we had a captain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was very difficult for people with a career to do that if you weren't an enlisted person. <laughs>
0: So the guys that were your instructors at this time, were these guys that had already done tours over in Vietnam? Because this is what year is this now, 1960?
1: 60, 68, early 68. Oh, so
0: you're definitely getting guys that were coming back from Vietnam. Right. And they're telling you what's going on. And a
1: big crowd of World War II folks. Uh, that, that They were still in because the Korean, I mean, the Korean War was over in 53, mm-hmm. right? And World War II was over in 45. So they still had time in their career to instruct at, uh, at BUDS. At that time, it was UDTRA. Mm-hmm. So it was a different world.
0: What do you remember? Was, did you have any trouble in training in any of the evolutions? Uh,
1: no, not really. Uh, I had trouble on the last swim, that four-and-a-half-mile swim uh, at San Clemente, and we just barely made it within a minute. But, uh, you know, the current was running really hard, And, I mean, we were really kicking just to make that. And a couple of guys didn't make it, had to do it again the next day. So I was really thankful for that big swim, you know, on that evolution to make it. But that's the only time I had any trouble.
0: How big was your class when you started? Oh,
1: man, I don't remember. Probably 43 or 44, 45, maybe 50 people. And then we, I think we whittled it down to 17. So we didn't have that bad of an attrition rate. Mm -hmm. We had some really great guys in 44. Bill, I don't know if you remember Bill Wildrick. Great officer. I mean, he was really an inspirational guy. He could have uh, been the poster boy for your book. (laughs) Really a great guy. So he was really good to me for whatever reason. So...
0: so, um, one last question about Buds. When, when you're showing up, you don't know anything that's about to take place. No. It seems like guys now, they know kind of the minute-by-minute yeah. minute schedule. I was a little bit in between. I, I, we didn't know a lot when I showed up to Buds. Like, I had never heard of pool competency, which ends up being a right. huge thing. I knew that there was a Hell Week thing somewhere in there where you stayed awake a bunch. But you just didn't know what was happening. What do you think? You think that's better or you think that's?
1: Oh, that's ten times better. Like, uh, one of my goals in life is the Navy has been very kind to me, just like the Marine Corps has been kind. You know, thank God for the Navy in my life. I'm sure I'd have been in prison otherwise, right? <laughs> By the grace of God. And, and so I try to tell people, especially in small town Texas, about the advantages of getting out of Texas and getting out of our small town and going seeing the world. So but a lot of them overthink it, and they just psych themselves up. It's just too bad that they publish as much as they do, because in my opinion, it's much better when you stand up and you just, what are we going to do next? Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get it on. You know, let's go. And so, Because I don't want to overthink things. Let's just do it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Did you... Um was going through hell week do you remember anything special about that for me i was kind of i was kind of happy about hell week because i wasn't the best athlete so a swim and a run where you had a time it was going to be it was all those were hard for me to pass i had to go basically the way i passed all my evolutions was by going as hard as i possibly could but i was always nervous you know sometimes i'd be like you were talking about like within a minute of right, the drop right. dead time, and I'd you know be going Goon to squat, yeah, and we weren't you were not allowed to wear a watch, right so there's no so for me, I failed one run in buds, and because I tried to pace myself, I tried to pace myself. And this is kind of how I look at life now, I tried to pace myself at <laughs> one run and I failed, and I was like, okay, and from then on, I just ran as hard as I freaking possibly could, and and that's how I passed, but the the thought of like actually knowing each little detailed thing that's going to come to you. When, when it came to Hell Week, I thought, there's no time limit? I'll, they can't stop me, I mean, I'll mean, i keep going no matter what. So I was kinda happy about Hell Week. It was one of the easier evolutions because there was no time limit. You just had to keep going, which I was, I, look, I might not have been the fastest runner or the fastest swimmer, the best of the obstacle course, but I was good at keeping going. I could just keep going no right. matter what. Right. Was Hell, White, Hell Week for you any, any uh, big eureka moment that you discovered anything?
1: No, just everybody was very nervous, and we had magic things that one class would give the other, like we would have a magic shirt that I got down from a guy by the name of Gary Cronin. He says this has been passed down five times. It was a wool shirt, long uh, sleeve wool shirt that you wore under your jumper. And he says, if you wear this shirt, you're going to pass. Howie, man, give that shirt. <laughs> I don't care if it costs a hundred dollars. I want that shirt, right? And then the other thing that saved me is I um, I had illusions, or I was delusional on Wednesday night when we had the big paddle from mm. the area down to IB or whatever it was. And Bill Wildrick, our crew chief, our, our our crew officer, was kind enough to let me sleep for 15 minutes in the belly of the boat because I was I was having, I mean I was freaking out, right? <laughs> I was seeing monsters and all kinds of different stuff. He says, Posey, you lay down in this boat and arrest the guy's paddle, and nobody complained. Yeah. So you try to return the favor however you possibly can to arrest those guys. You know, be the first one out there. Get the boat ready. You know, pay them back for the nice thing they did for you to allow you to go through Hell Week.
0: Yeah, I—, I. I had some guys that I saw completely hallucinating things. I had one small hallucination, but I don't know if it really counts because I knew it was a hallucination. (laughs) And while it was happening, I was like, oh, this is, we're out there on that thing. I think they call it around the world. We're doing around the world and we're paddling and we're in the middle of the ocean and all of a sudden I start seeing uh, traffic lights, like stop signs and traffic lights and it's going to red, green. And I'm I'm looking, I'm like, I'm, I'm just hallucinating. That's not real. So I don't know, does that count? What do you think, Echo Charles, does that count? <laughs> yes. If you know it's fake, but it no. looks real?
2: Yeah, yeah. No. Okay, that was 100%. the only
0: hallucinations I had. No monsters, thankfully. <laughs> yeah. I had one guy that started swearing, like language-wise. Mm. And he started swearing, he didn't stop for about 20 (laughs) minutes. (laughs) Just every word, freaking swearing to everybody, we are like, hey, is everything okay? Fuck yeah, are
1: you, fuck around and we're
0: like, okay, bro, (laughs) (laughs) hey, dude, whatever it takes, man. (laughs) Just just stay in the boat, man, it's all good.
1: But what are you gonna do in the ocean when that happens? You have no recourse, you can't lay them on the deck, on the sand, I mean, what are you gonna do? (laughs) Keep paddling. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) paddle a little faster.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So at this time, so it's 1968, at this time, and I was talking to uh, Roger Hayden about this. Oh. He, he, said, he said- That's a
1: hero of mine. I love that, Roger 100%. 100%.
0: Hayden. Yes, sir. He, he said most guys went to UDT yes. when they graduated.
1: Well, there uh, was three UDTs and one SEAL team. He said
0: occasionally a guy would go straight to SEAL team, yes. but it was very rare. That's right. Most guys were going to UDT. Expl- a lot of people might not know about the UDT at that time. What was going on with the underwater demolition teams
1: at that time? Well, on the West Coast, there was UDT 11, 12, and 13. 13 was a new team they started, I believe, in 67 and disband. I think it was 70, 71, 72. And so the Navy was, again, our main driver for funding and for manning, for everything. And so they wanted to keep udt because if in case of an amphibious landing or other sorted things udt was useful to them other than that they had no time for you and there was no funding so like in our in our team we had three pickup trucks and we had to go once a day to 32nd street to uh, to give them the surf uh, report Mm -hmm. so we would drive one pickup truck in the morning at eight o'clock go to 32nd Street and come home. That's the only time we'd use that truck because the other two pickup trucks we had were in the team area, but they were up on cement blocks because we robbed those for parts to keep this one going. So there was just no, no money. And so we just kind of made things happen. And, but I think we were better for that because we had, I mean, when we went to Vietnam, we had a parabag bag half full because we had no gear. There was no reason to have a lot of gear because, we didn't have any money. So it really worked out well for me in my Naval career because I was able to learn how to trade things with other services and make things happen. Uh, And that really worked out to be very good training for me to support my sailors. My my goal was always to support my fellow sailors because the Navy wasn't doing it well, nobody else was. Mm -hmm. So
0: that was important. So you got ordered. What what UDT team did you end up Thirteen. At? So it's now, is it 1969 now, or is it still 68? It's still 68. So it's 1968, you get your orders to UDT team 13. Yes, sir. You walk down the grinder a little bit, knock on a Quonson hut. Is that basically no, what happened?
1: Uh, there was four, t- <laughs> in the old cement, people who don't know about SEAL team don't know about that old uh, cement building. It was. I don't know if they've tore that down or not.
0: They tore everything down. Uh, okay, right they now, tore so. that
1: down. So it was probably a hundred yards long and probably, you know, a hundred feet uh, wide. And they, we had four teams in that building. You know, SEAL team one, and then eleven, twelve, and thirteen UDT. So everybody had a very limited space, and. It was kind of difficult, but one team was always, or, you know, one-and-a-half teams, because SEAL team was always there, uh, were always in Vietnam. So we had very limited space, no resources at all, and it was, it was difficult because of that, because there was just no room.
0: So when you got to UDT-13, you checked in. What would they do with you? Did you go uh, right into a platoon?
1: No, no. They immediately sent you to school. Because they were, we were deploying, and you had to go to Sears School. You had to go. In my case, I went to Outboarder Motor School uh, to jump school, and then it was just timed so the day you graduated from Sears School, you got an airplane and went to Vietnam.
0: Did you get? Did you wear that old insignia, the, like the the UDT insignia with yes. no eagle on it?
1: No, no that that wasn't. There was no insignia in 68. Uh, that came later. And uh, the insignia you had is you had like a diver's helmet on this, uh, on your uniform right here, and that was the only insignia you had. And then, of course, UDT-13 on that uh, on the, name badge. Right, right. And that there was no team badge. There was nothing. I, I'm going to tell you a little story. You probably heard this many times. So we get um, – the Pirate, I don't know if you remember who Pete the Pirate was? I, I, I okay. know his name, but okay. I don't know yeah. So he supposedly designed the insignia for SEAL team, right? Because he was drinking Budweiser one day, and he submitted like 20 designs because they asked for t- guys in the teams to, to do design. Now, there's a lot of controversy about that. So about three months later, uh, they walk into the Quonset hut, and they said, okay, everybody's got their insignia. Uh, you know, and they gave us the—they just dropped this bag on the table, and they said, okay, everybody's got one of these. If you're an officer, you have a gold one. If you're enlisted, you have a silver one. We're going to have an inspection tomorrow morning. So uh, you know, everybody's, ah, uh, <laughs> inspection. So we're out there standing on the grinder. Some guys got it on the right side. Some guys got it on the left side. They have it here, they have it here. They, they, they're thinking about putting it on their Dixie <laughs> cup, right? But I mean, nobody knew what to do with it, right?
0: And so this was the original Trident?
1: Original UDT insignia that was different from the SEAL Trident. So
0: the, the UDT insignia, this is the one that basically that looks the same, but there's no eagle?
1: That's correct. And so nobody, I mean, SEAL team had their thing going the same morning. Everybody Mm -hmm. did the same thing. We just didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know what it meant. And so that was it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What year did that happen? Was that after you got back from Vietnam? Yeah,
1: after we got back from Vietnam.
0: So so you show up to, to UDT 13. You, you don't get put in a platoon. You just get sent to seer School. You yeah. get sent to Outboard Motor School. Right. You get sent to Jump School. There's no one tracking you. There's no one saying like, hey, this is what we're getting ready to oh, do. Oh,
1: oh, they're tracking you because as soon as you get back, you go to another school. So they knew when you were coming back, and then they would immediately go to another school. Then you just jump on the airplane. But I knew what platoon I was in. Mm-hmm. I knew who my OAC was and all that.
0: And were those guys already overseas?
1: No, no, they were. They okay. were in the states.
0: So they're they're shuffling yeah. you through all these schools. Right. When you got done with schooling, did you go through any kind of pre-deployment workup? Like you know, None. like I did my whole career was like, oh, you're getting ready to deploy. You get put into a platoon. You you know you you uh, first you do some schooling like you're talking about the pro dev they call it professional development. So you go to a bunch of schools. Then it's six months of ULT. And then it's six months of the advance post that, and then you go on to Plymouth. No use, none of that.
1: It was a weekend at Danny's doing <laughs> ULT. That's how. Dan, for people who do know what Danny's is, it's an old time team bar on, uh, uh, in Coronado, and that's, that was okay. it. So it was really OJT. And we had, we relied on the guys coming from SEAL team to UDT because there were so many new people and so many I mean everybody was an E3 right because they expanded the teams and same with the boat guys and there was no time for training they just wanted to get you into the work cuz there was 500,000 Americans in Vietnam at the time so you had to go over there and take the next team's you know place i mean how long
0: was it from when you graduated UDT replacement training to Getting to the team, how long did you spend there before you went to Vietnam? Did you go to Vietnam as a platoon? No, we, as
1: a team. As a whole team? Yeah, as a whole team.
0: So, so UDT 13, how many guys were there?
1: A uh, total of about 90, 90 to 100.
0: And you're broken up into platoons inside the team? just like Yes, a,
1: of course. Same basic.
0: So you all got on a plane.
1: We, we got on two planes. We got on two DC 6s and we hedge hopped Hawaii, <laughs> Johnson Island, uh, mm-hmm. you know, going over. It's a three day airplane ride. Mm-hmm. And because we just went from island to island and finally made it to PI, which was our main mustering uh, base. And then we were dispatched to where we were going to go and from Vietnam from there.
0: But prior to, prior to going on that, getting on that plane with the rest of the team, did you go to? desert warfare training did you go to did you guys train over the beach did you guys just do hydro hydro recons up at camp pendleton like what did you do to get ready
1: yeah we we did some of that but it was like for for me it was like a month long other guys who had been in a team for a long time got that training because they were there i wasn't there and we were short manned you know because they just built that team so they were drawing and, and the beauty of team 13 God rest the souls of some of the people who've been in it. But a lot of times, if you wanted to get rid of somebody that was causing a problem, you'd send them to 13, right? <laughs> <laughs> Lucky 13. So, yeah, so it was a very uh, esoteric bunch of folks in <laughs> uh, 13 and a lot of characters. You know what I'm saying?
0: <laughs> so what platoon were you in at, at UDT 13? Uh,
1: I think I was in Bravo. And so it worked out good. And Paul Plum's my OAC.
0: So you get on the plane, now you're flying over there. You, do you know what your missions are gonna be?
1: Don't have any idea. Don't have a clue.
0: <laughs> no idea what you're gonna be doing.
1: Don't know, don't care. Just give me the gun, let's go.
0: Are you, have you, uh, You know, at one point you were trying to avoid the draft But now it seems like you're kind of all in, let's go get some?
1: No, but the reason people were avoiding the draft because this army was so pitiful because they were wasting those bodies. Mm -hmm. Why go? I mean, I don't mind dying, right? Because I never never thought I'd last past 29. I mean, I thought if I made it to 30, I'd be an old man. I just had that feeling all my life. Uh, And so, but why waste your life? Have somebody poor. All that money to bring you up and just kill you for no reason. I mean, why do that? But you're in the teams. You know, the first day I got to the teams, we that first muster in the morning at money. I looked to my right and I looked to my left, and it was all a bunch of weirdos like me. I ne- I never fat, fit into society. I wasn't a popular guy or an outgoing guy or a well-spoken guy. I was kind of you know nobody really wanted me type of guy. You know what I'm saying? And so I get there, and I see in my class of 43 or whatever it was, people, they're all like me. I said, man, I found a home. This is my, this is my people, huh? <laughs> I mean, all a bunch of other weirdos. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so now you're go, now you get to Vietnam, you have no idea what kind of mission you're going to be doing.
1: Well, we knew more or less because we practiced it, you know, especially in training. Training was built around the mission in uh, Vietnam. So mm-hmm. we did a lot of hydrographic reconnaissance. We did a lot of patrolling. We did a lot of that so we could pick up those skills, you know. But we were the last class to go into 13, so we didn't have the training that they had before that when they built the team. Mm-hmm. And some of those guys, I mean, they had been to Vietnam like, I don't know if, you know, you wouldn't know. Tobacco Lou, uh, this guy was fabulous and he was my mentor and he was just as crazy as a day long. But whenever he said something, you listened to him because he had been in Vietnam a number of times and he knew what he was talking about. So you listened to the voice of authority. Mm -hmm. So that's what we all did. Lou said it. We did it.
0: So you're training for hydrographic reconnaissance. Yes, sir. You're training for patrolling. Yep. And you're thinking that— PA, patrolling. Oh, for for direct action, Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: So there's there's a decent amount of crossover with what the SEAL yes. platoons were doing. Yeah,
1: we, we were the poor man's SEALs. <laughs> so when they didn't have a mission they didn't like, you know, give it to UDT.
0: <laughs> so you show up in Vietnam. What, where, where'd you initially go?
1: Tonsanuk. Then we got on the— um, Oh, I can't remember the name of the ship. It was a destroyer escort, and we did a couple of months of hydrographic reconnaissance. And that was was really a good thing for us because uh, we got to gel as a platoon, and everybody learned their place, and we saw who the real warriors were and who to talk to and who to listen, and so that was very good. And so, like, after the mission, you know, in a debrief, Lou would say things— you know, Posey, what the hell's wrong with you? What you are standing at the beach party and you are lollygagging and not looking around and not at the ready position. If the VC come over that berm, what are you going to do? Uh, you are right. I, I was, you know, and so he would straighten us out. He was a great mentor to us because he'd been in SEAL Team and a, a stone alcoholic, but you know, he would you you listen to what he said.
0: Was he your platoon chief? Yes. And you guys are doing hydrographic reconnaissance. Are you lead line and slate, whole nine yards?
1: right. Lead line. So uh, I'll just explain because nobody knows what a hydrographic reconnaissance is. So you have a beach party of four people. And so you have two uh, ends of it and in the center. And you have a line that could be at least 1,000 yards long. And you have it on a big spool. And so you take the spool and – then, every depending on the gradient of the beach, every 50 feet or 100 feet, you would have somebody swimming this line down the beach. And you might go a thousand yards, you might go, you know, a click. And uh, you would take the lead line, see how deep it went, and write it on your slate, uh, you know, position number one, 50 feet. Position, well, you never went over 18 feet. Mm-hmm. You know, that was 18 to zero was what you're looking at in hydrographic constants. Then you would take all the slates once you got done with your beach, and you'd go back to the ship and you'd make a map of that that beach. So the gradient was at uh, 1,000 yards out. It was 17 feet. So if they have to bring the LSTs in or a landing craft, they knew what was going on. So it, it was very interesting. And... Uh, Really kind of a lot of fun because you would just be, I mean, you would have your face in the water all day, you know, just kicking. And you'd usually do two a day. You'd do a 1,000 yards in the morning, maybe a 1,000 yards in the afternoon. So it, it was a lot of fun. And Vietnam's really a beautiful place. I mean, breathtakingly beautiful. And some of the water is just incredibly clear, you know, especially Cameron Bay. Just, it's a delight to be in. I mean, it's like being at a resort and getting paid to be at the resort, right?
0: This was the, the promise you got. You're yeah. Gonna, maybe he's gonna be buying <laughs> a beer. Were you guys doing mostly daytime or, or nighttime?
1: Daytime, because you had to see where you sat in the line and keep the line straight so everybody's uh, slate would be mm-hmm. correct.
0: Yeah, I did two ARG platoons yes, back in the day, and we did hydrographic reconnaissance, <laughs> lead line and slate. I remember we did a... ORE, operational readiness exercise before we deployed to Iraq. And my platoon drew the straw to get put on the ship for, for the pre-deployment training exercise. And you know, this is we know we know like this is when you're in Iraq, I'm getting ready to deploy to Iraq. We know that we're going to take those guys' place. Right. And we get put on a ship and we get we get this task he comes down. And I remember I walk down the platoon space where all the guys are, I'm like, All right, boys, get the lead line and slates out. It's on. And one guy by the name of Johnny, I won't say his full name, but he goes, Are you kidding me? What are we doing? We're gonna do a hydro. I said, Yep, we're doing a hydro. I said he said, You gotta be kidding me. We're going to Iraq. There ain't no freaking hydros in Iraq. Four hundred and
1: seventy-one miles from the ocean. Yeah.
0: He was going totally nuts. And you know what we did? We got our lead line and slate out and we went out and did a hydrographic reconnaissance with a flutterboard at Red Beach or wherever yeah. it was and and took that stuff down. That's that the Navy still needed that information for yeah. whatever reason. I think now they're kind of past. I think now they have. Uh, Electronically. S- yeah, yeah, they can do it with digital right. imagery and stuff like that. But that's only, what, 15 or 20 years ago yeah. that we were still out there with a lead line and a slate. <laughs> <laughs> so that's your first couple months of deployment. You're just getting your hydrographic reconnaissance on. Right. Were you, what was, What position? Were you the flutterboard man because you were a good swimmer?
1: Uh, No, I wasn't a good swimmer. I mean, I I can swim okay, but I wasn't the best. My position, a lot of times, we learned then how to adapt, and we had an IBS on board the ship, and we put a 9.9-horsepower motor on the back of that IBS, Mm -hmm. and we pulled the sea side of it, so the, the ocean, I mean, the land side, we could pull that line so much quicker yep. by doing that and so much more accurately, and that's what we did, and I was constantly trying to keep that outboard motor running, right. so that worked out well for our whole platoon.
0: Yeah, that's a hell of a lot easier than yeah. trying to swim that flutterboard. Yeah. Whew. How? So you did that for a couple months, you're out there doing these hydrographic reconnaissance, and what came after that?
1: Uh, then we went into... Uh, the Delta, and we uh, were off of Antoy, and we'd take sh- uh, Swift boats uh, off of an LST, off of an island in the south of Vietnam, and go in and uh, do patrolling. And that was basically the next four months we did a lot of patrolling and, you know, tried to do some DA and stuff like that, you know?
0: So what What are these operations like?
1: Uh, you go in, you get dropped off by the Swift boat. Well, first of all, you go in, it's ch- a lot of very narrow uh, canals a lot of times if you weren't in a river so you would always engage at the beginning so you you, you knew where we exactly where they were going to hit you so you say okay at the point uh, x-rays coming up everybody could get behind uh, we had a railing and we had uh uh, armor, body armor on mm-hmm. the railing, you know, and so we would all get behind the the body armor on the railing, and they would open up with an RPG or a claymore or something like that, and we would go a mile past and said, "Oh, that wasn't that bad today," you know. It so was, you
0: you is it because you were going through channelized areas and you yes. look at the map and be like, "Oh yeah, here's the channelized area, right. here's where they're gonna get us." Yeah.
1: And so, it, I mean, it was very ineffective, but you just kept your head down. No swift boat guys, I mean, they were always being hit. Those guys were really brave guys because they had so many casualties. And they were right there, you know, with the 50s and the 60s and stuff and letting them have it where we'd be hiding behind it with our our M16 pointed out from the side. We'd be, okay, okay, we're gonna gonna get those VC today. We never saw them. (laughs) I'm sure they were on the other canal, uh, you know, with a command detonated Claymore or something, you know?
0: Yeah. What what was the goal of these missions?
1: Um, I I think just to go make sure that they didn't take a big foothold in whatever sector you were in. And we would go to their camp, and we would burn the camp down. You know, we'd get some C4 and light it and put it in the hooches, and it would burn down their hooches, and we'd go run their pigs off and stuff like that. And then we would patrol through the jungle. They'd drop us off in the jungle, and we'd patrol through the jungle because they weren't expecting us. You know, at that time, uh, that was right after Tet, so Tet— in the united states was very demoralizing because the, the army always said you know we have this we have this sector we have this country we're doing better every day and then ted happens this massive battle and we beat them back of course but a lot especially the marines up north really took a beating and after that as far as the people here in America, I I think, were that that was the end of Vietnam. We knew we were coming back out of Vietnam because they did Tet. And then you go overseas in Vietnam, and the Army didn't want to go. They would tell us all the time. They would say, okay, you guys can go outside the wire and do your mission or whatever you want to do, but don't expect us to come. And, you know, be a QRF because we're probably not coming out to get you. Or if we are due, it might be the ninth, next day, mm-hmm. right? Because the war, everybody wanted to stay behind the wire because they knew the war was going to be over and they didn't want to be the last man standing. Mm-hmm. So it was a different attitude. But we were gun-ho. We went, hey, let's rock and roll, baby. Let's do it. You know, let's, let's go. This is our big chance. And so we we would go out, and our officers were very aggressive the The men were aggressive, and we just could do whatever we wanted to do. Of course, we it up the pole, so mm-hmm. that the, the command knew what we were doing, but it was really good for us because we what? could catch the v c they'd be sitting lollygagging, and we'd be walking up to them and they're over there lollygagging, and they wouldn't have any idea that we were coming on them. you know nobody was out there, mm-hmm. What position did you walk in patrol? Uh, I was rear security. So I like that position because a lot of, in my estimation, and I'm probably wrong here, but I was, you know, I was always cognizant. If somebody comes up on you, they're going to usually see you before you see them. So you got to do a good job because it could be devastating them coming right up, you know, right up Mm -hmm. on you.
0: Would most of your patrol, how many guys would you take out on a standard patrol?
1: Usually eight to ten.
0: Would you guys, how, how many uh, M60s would you carry? And would you guys, did you guys have stoners like they had over on no, the SEAL team? No,
1: we, we were the poor man's SEAL team. <laughs> so no stoners. I, I, I'm just in going to talk about the M16, if you don't mind, Commander. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the, we we got to Vietnam and we used a variety of different weapons here in training in, in San Diego, and none, I don't remember any M-16s that we used here. So we get there and they gave us the M-16, you say, man, this is so much different from those wood stock, very, very heavy weapons we had, you know, and they, they really work good, and they're brand new, right, at, right out of Cosmoline, right? And so we go on our first uh, first mission and we get everything, we're soaked, we're everything, because we're trooping through the jungle and it's raining, and we have to go through these different low spots that are full of water, and we get the gun wet, and we get in a firefight, and you'd have to constantly recharge the weapon because it wouldn't it wouldn't work, you know, and so we then we, they had this real thick uh, lubricant that came from the manufacturer of the weapon, and they said, "This is the lubricant to use to keep your rifle, but it kind of gummed everything up, and so you know, after about three of these where the thing didn't work, I, I went to the armor, I said, dude, you gotta give me something that works. I don't care what it is, you can give me a six gun because it's better than an M16, I can I can make it work, right? And so they gave me an M3A1, a grease gun, you know, a little mm-hmm. tank, uh, people in tanks in World War II used, it cost, General Motors made these, 12, uh, these uh, guns for $12.87 each during World War II, right? And they gave me that gun. The only thing you have to do is shake it one time, the water out, and then that thing would work flawlessly. You could come right out of the water, bring it up, give it a little dip, bang, 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 bang. It was a wonderful weapon. And I I carried that a lot because it worked every time. So I really liked that weapon. And it was very negatively buoyant, but it, it really worked good.
0: What was your op tempo like? I mean, how often were you guys going out on these patrols?
1: You know, sometimes a lot, sometimes a little, depending on what was going on and what we had coming down the pipe, uh, you know, what the Navy would task us. We were really, some a lot of times, dependent on the Navy to do something with assets, swift boats, or whatever. So sometimes we'd work five days a week, sometimes six, sometimes two. So that's going to lead me to my next point, if you don't mind. So I like to operate, right? Right. You know, and, and I, I, I like to be busy because I don't like to sit around. So I would volunteer. I'd go to Mr. Plum and say, Mr. Plum, you've got to give me a job, man. I can't sit here in this LST or we're on sea float. You know, we're on sea float. It's nasty. And so he said, Posey, I've got a deal for you. You're going to go with the Army today. Said, Fine. So what we would do, I would hook up with a second lieutenant. I was 21 at the time, and he was, like, 20, right? Never been in combat, and they given him a a platoon of Arvin, right? We had a platoon of 30 Arvin, which was the Vietnamese National Guard. 30 Vietnamese who had little battle experience, if any, and we would go out with them, and we would patrol with these guys, and we never let let them get behind us. Never, ever let them get behind us because you don't know who's the VC and who's not, and you'd get shot in the back. So I would carry the radio. They never let non-English speaking people carry the radio because you had to have somebody, you know, that people could, one, understand, two, knew that they weren't getting suckered in with some Viet Cong on the radio. So I would carry the radio and the lieutenant would be in front of me and we would be in back of the platoon. And so I, re- I like that because, uh, I mean, these guys were slow and they had no ability to engage the enemy. I mean, we had 30 guys, and if there were six guys engaging us, you know, they were freaking out, you know? And so we would kind of round them up and, you know, well, you're gonna go here, and you're gonna go here, and, you know, it was kind of fun. And um, one day we were out there with these guys, and they all gave them, you know, they knew there was no VC in the vicinity. So that's the, the missions that they would give us because these guys were so terrible. And so we went out today, and we, we saw, like, these 30 guys giving us the evil eye about, a, a, you know, half a click off over the other side of this rice paddy. Said, LT, we got to uh, make it back to the, the boats because these guys got that evil look on us, and they're going to come and get us. And he said, yeah. So anyhow, we're getting these, you know, we're telling these, visa, I mean, these uh, Arvin guys, we got to move. We got to get back. Well, they're kind of lollygagging along, and these VCs are coming right up on us, right? And I say to LT, we better, you know, you know, we better do something. And he said, oh, yeah. no, he, he was good. I, I can't find fault with him at all. So we had this this battle line there in the, in the Hedge Grove area type, and things got real bad for us. And so I got on the radio, and I called uh, the, the net there, and I said— Uh, You know, to the Army guys, is there anybody else that can come and help us? Do you have any helos or anything out there that can help us? And they said, we got no helos, but we do have a fast mover coming in on you guys. Uh, Will that help you? And I said, does he have anything on board that can light these guys up? He said, oh yeah, he's equipped with napalm. I said, really? And so through that radio relay, you know, we talked to that guy. And uh, they they talked to him. I talked to them. And I said, okay, we're going to pop the smoke. And on the south side of the smoke, don't let that napalm go on us. You know, let it go on those dudes. And they did. And I'd never been around napalm close before because you could always see it in the distance, but never close. And, man, it was incredible, the power of the napalm, just absolutely incredible. and We were probably— 100 feet away, you know, honkered down. We could, we could see him off flying that Phantom, coming in. And he dropped that napalm, and it was just like a blast furnace. And he lit those guys up, and uh, the VC it lit them up, and they were still running completely engulfed in flames and, and liquefied or jelly uh, gasoline. And it was really incredible to see that the power of that weapon and so then we obviously, as soon as he lit him up, we all ran away uh, and went back to the, the extraction point. And so uh, I'm happy that guy was there because I don't know, it'd probably be me and the LT and the Arvins. At that point, we had to let the Arvins been behind us because we would have been running full speed ahead through that jungle, right? I mean, <laughs> it was getting real bad real fast.
0: How often would you say you came into enemy contact on these operations? You know, I've got some some Vietnam friends that it, that were in the SEAL teams. Sometimes they'd say they'd barely gotten any contacts right. with the enemy. Other guys, different deployments. They got in contact, Even Roger Hayden, from one deployment to the next, one time he's out there, it's like not too bad. The next time it's crazy. What was it like for you?
1: No, it wasn't. We weren't SEALs, and we knew we weren't SEALs, and we would just go do the missions that the Navy told us to do. So it wasn't like... Ramadi. Mm. I mean, it was—we'd have contact as far as claymores and stuff like that going on in swift boats. But I mean, it wasn't at all like what you experienced in, in your battles.
0: Well, I don't know. I didn't. It wasn't getting chased out by VC and having <laughs> to drop napalm hundred fifty <laughs> feet away. But. but we
1: were lucky on that, though. You know, <laughs> we were very lucky.
0: How were you? How was your luck with taking casualties?
1: Uh, for the Arvin.
0: No, for, for your for your UDT platoon. Well,
1: in my platoon, I don't think we had one casualty. and We had a real good OIC. Paul Plum, I don't know if you know him, uh, he was really a good officer, and he really looked out for the sailors. So we were really good with that. And he did. You know, he would see the mission, and he would uh, explain the mission. And very – you know, most of the guys – we were called knuckle draggers, right? And so he Still had, are. yeah, you had to be simple because, you know, we just didn't have the experience of all the stuff that they have now. And so he was really good, and, and we got it. And so it, it just wasn't the op tempo of SEAL Team One for UDT in most places. Mm-hmm.
0: And then how long were you doing, yeah, this was all taking place, all those missions were taking place, those patrolling missions were taking place out of the the barge?
1: Some at barge, some of the swift boat, depending if you were in Antoy. Antoy was an island and you'd go in and the barge was in the middle of the, the river, you know, and so we would deploy off of that.
0: And so you did operations off both those? Yes, sir. And how long were you doing those types of operations? So you did a couple months worth of hydrographic reconnaissance off of the USS, whatever that ship was. Yes. And then, and then now you're doing cook, USS cook, USS cook. And now you're doing these type of patrolling operations and, you know, swift boat operations. How many months were you doing that for?
1: I think around four, but you had every two months you'd have a break. And sometimes you'd go back to the PI and regroup and get new guys or do whatever.
0: And then how long was the total deployment? Uh, six months. Okay. So that was, that was pretty Standard. much your deployment. Yes, sir. So you come home from that deployment, what year is it?
1: 69, yeah, I think 69.
0: And then what what was the, what was the? Apollo. Oh, that's right. (laughs) So at what point did you hear about
1: Apollo? Well, when we were getting, you know, nobody wanted to come home. At least most of the guys didn't want to come home because people didn't like you if you were in the armed services. If you had a haircut, like the most of us in this room, they perceived you to be a soldier or a sailor, and they didn't like you. So I didn't want to come home. I volunteered to stay. And then they said, well, you can go on Apollo. I said, oh, man, I was a history major also in school. And I said, man, this is a time to, you know, if I can be on Apollo, even though it's such a pain, it was a pain in the ass uh, that I should do this. So they, they one day they announced, okay, we're going to do Apollo uh, 12 and 13, and whoever wants to do it, come and see the XO. So nobody saw him the first day. And so the second day, they make at quarters, they said, whoever wants to be on Apollo, <laughs> go see the XO. Because we knew the next day you would be voluntold, yeah, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> and so for Apollo 11, the first one, you yeah, were in that, Vietnam when that oh, all yeah. happened, right? We,
1: we didn't even know it happened because we were out and there was no TV or radio. But that was the big one. Everybody wanted to go on that one. And I knew a couple guys on that, and that was really— Wolfram, uh, I can't remember his first name, but he uh, did a really good job on that. They had the good guys on mm-hmm.
0: that. But then once it was over, people ah. like, ah, everyone hears what the story is. It's yeah. sitting around in the ocean for a while, looking up at the sky, yeah. waiting for these guys to touch down, <laughs> being on a ship wherever you are. So yeah. it turned from a good deal to like, hey, maybe we yeah. don't want to do it, that. It
1: wasn't a team deal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't a good deal for the team guys. So – They say, so I go to the XO, and I said, okay, I want to go on Apollo, but I want to choose my position on the team. And he says, well, what position do you want to be? And I said, I want to be the first man out the door. He says, you got it, Posey. (laughs) So... He was lying to me, and I know he was lying to me, but
2: <laughs> I thought I had a shot, right?
1: Because the first man out the team had his name announced. It was a, literally a billion people looking at TV, on, even on the second one, because they thought the second one was going to blow up because it got struck by lightning on the pad, right? And so uh, so I said, okay, I'm going to be the first guy out the door. And he says, yeah. And so uh, then other people volunteered, and we We did it. So the reason why it was a pain in the butt is because we did it three times a day, morning, noon, and night, cover of darkness. is because we never knew when the capsule was going to come down for sure or not, right? And you'd go out, and in the first supposed two hours, you'd be on scuba on the surface of the water uh, because they thought there were moon bugs. We didn't know if there was decontamination from the moon. (coughs) Excuse me and so you'd suck that thing i mean i probably sucked that tank dry in 15 minutes but you had to keep it in your mouth on the side to breathe because uh you know that was the procedure that's what Mm -hmm. nasa required and so we would be out there and doing this thing and for the first two hours being on the surface like that with that thing in your mouth it would make you seasick and so you'd throw up so every all the time before the mission, I would go eat a bunch of saltine crackers because I didn't like dry heaving. I'd rather heave something that was solid rather than just dry heaving. And so you'd be seasick for maybe a half hour, then you'd get over it, and you know away you went. And the process for every minute they had, you were supposed to do uh, minute A, minute B, minute all the way to XXXX. NASA knew what you were supposed to be doing over that four hours and 45 minutes. And you had to abide by that schedule to do because if you fell behind, they were really mad for whatever reason. And our team was really good. And I think at one time we held the recovery rector on uh, Apollo 10 for doing the fastest one. And the problem with it is the guys land in the ocean, these three astronauts in this capsule that's 12 feet across, And probably 10 feet, oh, not even 10 feet, 9 feet high, right? And they're bobbing there for like an hour on the thing inside of this capsule on their back. And they come out, and there is green. I mean, I don't see anything green on this table. They're this color green when they get out of the capsule because they're so seasick because they've been in this capsule with bad air, and I'm sure all their— Sewage problems and all this stuff and they're green when they come out of it And you want to get them out of that as soon as possible. So you know to to give them some relief So it was a very interesting thing Uh, We had a mock-up and we practice on that off of the Hornet. That was the aircraft carrier. We did that three times a day one time we couldn't stop the capsule and the capsule would catch the wind, and it would run. If you got in front of the capsule, it would run you over, just like a lawnmower, right? And go over you about two knots. And you know, you can't swim two knots; it's impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, with all the stuff we had to wear, it's impossible at two knots. And so we couldn't stop this. So we, in our morning exercise, we couldn't stop it. So we went back in the afternoon, and I said, you know, if I get If you drop me right on the capsule, I think, because the first man out the door, there was a D-ring on the side of the capsule, and you would hook this hook into the D-ring and deploy a parachute to stop the forward Mm -hmm. progress of this capsule from running over you and running away. You couldn't stop it. So I said, drop me right on the capsule, and I can stop this thing, because we had the other team doing it. And I was lucky enough to be able to do it. I'm sure the wind wasn't as great as it was in the morning or whatever, you know. And they said, because they were thinking about firing a, a, a 50 caliber into it to sink it because it's a, a navigation hazard. Mm. I mean, it's a big piece of iron, right? And we stopped that. And then on the mission day, the seas from trough to crest of the wave were probably 12 to 15 feet. Yeah it was really brutal, and it was slapping that capsule around like there was no end. They said, what are those guys going through inside of that capsule? So I jump out of the helicopter that day, and they, they, they put me right next to it, right? And I go, and I can't find the D-ring. I can't find I'm panicked. You know, what, what, to my mind, Commander, what's worse? Being somewhere where you're supposed to be competent and you're totally incompetent and you make a fool of yourself, what's worse than that? Nothing. Nothing, <laughs> nothing. You know, it's like, you know.
0: Especially with a billion people watching. Yeah, I yeah. Guess that's, that's the one thing that's worse, <laughs> is have a billion people watch you be incompetent when you're supposed to be competent. It's,
1: it's like the bridegroom on the, the wedding night. I mean, <laughs> y- you wanna be competent, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. Yes, you wanna be competent. And so, I couldn't find it and I was panicked. And I didn't know they put a piece of foil over, because the outer layer of the capsule has foil, it's gold foil. and It's very bright, and it shined in your mask, and it, it was very difficult to see. So I'm going around tapping the sides of the capsule looking for it, and I finally found it, and I was able to hook it up, and then we went from there. And so it went really good for having such high C's. So the rest of the process, and they said, whatever you do, whatever you do, you do not go and strip the foil off the capsule because they want to analyze it. The capsule is like a fiberglass aircraft aluminum, right? And all over the, they have this gold foil, this plastic gold foil. Do not take any of the foil because we have to analyze the situation when it comes out of the spa, uh, out of the, out of the air. We need to know what's going on. So, oh no, we would never do that, right? <laughs> we would never do that. So. We knew at what point the aircraft carrier. The aircraft carrier takes four miles to turn around, right? And otherwise, they're right on you, and they got the big, you know, the giant binoculars about mm-hmm. that big, and they're looking at you. You know, uh, you know, one of those. It's the NASA guys always hated us, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just like everybody else, <laughs> and so. As soon as the aircraft carrier starts making its turn, we go on the other side of the capsule and we're stripping this foil off and we're sticking it in our wetsuits, you know. <laughs> well,
2: one Maybe for we can mom, sell it back to them. Yeah, one for mom, one for
1: the girl. I had a girlfriend that played the cello and I could never get anywhere with that girlfriend i said man this is this is going to bode me well with this girlfriend this thing's been to the moon man she's getting something m- i gave what is this <laughs>
0: how big was the area that you knew that the capsule was going to touch down in
1: well we anticipated being within 4 miles so, so it was pretty accurate. Pretty accurate, but you never know because they had the aircraft. I mean, excuse me, the Air Force guys and C-130s with the para guys being able uh. to jump out if it wasn't within, because uh, they knew once it started decelerating, uh, coming out of space, because it had to go from twenty-four thousand five hundred miles down to, you know, five miles an hour. Uh, they knew upon a deceleration where it's going to be, so we would steam to that thing. And it, I mean that that carrier was right there. I mean we saw it come right out of the sky. So that was really that that those mathematicians and the sailors really did did well on that.
0: Yeah, know? that seems like a that seems like yeah. a big challenge. Knowing where that thing's <laughs> going to be within four miles, free, going from twenty five thousand miles an hour yeah. through the through the atmosphere. And then did did so were you the first guy out? You were the first guy out. To, did they yeah, say your name on Absolutely. There we go. And
1: and so this is kind of a funny funny thing here. So my mother was really proud of me. You know, <laughs> my son, he's going to be on a Mom, nobody wanted to do it. it was, I, I volunteered first. <laughs> I, you know, she said, "Don't tell the neighbors that and you were selected." Yeah. As
0: far as Mom was concerned, you went through a rigorous selection program to figure out who had who had what, who
1: had the right stuff. That's right. You no, know, we we drew straws, and the low man got to go on Apollo because nobody else wanted to go. On. <laughs> do you still have any of the foil? No. Dang it. Uh, so my mother knew i was going to be in an apollo and she knew that my name was going to be announced right and my city so she we didn't have color tv my father didn't like color tv so she says i'm buying a color tv i'm going to see my son <laughs> so they had all the neighbors in and all the, the we had a group of kids that i went to school and college with and they all came over to my house and my wife didn't know me but she came to my mother's house just for that thing, and and she says, "My the first time I saw my husband it was a half inch tall." <laughs> <laughs> so that was a big deal. <laughs>
0: so what happens when you get done with that? What, what's your next thing in, uh, in, in UDT? Then
1: I I wanted to go on thirteen because I, I just I was. You know, we my team was really good at this, okay? We had some great officers, great chiefs, great people doing it, and I wanted to go. And I said, okay, I want to go. And they said, well, you're just about done. And I said, what do you mean I'm done? And, and he, he says, well, you got to sign up for another four years uh, to go on this. And I said, four years to go on Apollo? Because uh, they had the Vietnamization. This was a terrible thing, and this is what I see going on in Iraq. They had the Vietnamization of Vietnam. So we turned over all of our assets to the Vietnamese, especially in the very hot sectors, and we would only go as backup or support if they were having a problem, you know? And so you could see the end of the war coming. Even in 69, the end of the war was coming because these guys were taken over. They were completely incompetent. And so I said, man, is Team 13 gonna make another deployment? Uh, probably, you know, but what's it going to be like? Are we just going to be sitting, you know, watching Victory at Sea movies somewhere and not really going out and doing a lot? And so I I just got out. I didn't up for that other four years. So...
0: Did you stay in the reserves? Was there a reserve yes. at the time?
1: Uh, the Navy, the real Navy reserves. So just
0: big Navy reserves. Yeah, big
1: Navy reserve. And you went to a diving unit or something. And then... And is that, and is that what you did? You stayed in yes. the reserves? And then they, uh, uh, Admiral Bonelli was instrumental in getting the other the, the UDT re, UDT Seal reserves going. So then, when they did that, I joined that. But then uh, I got real busy and I dropped out of that for a while.
0: What did you do when you when when you were in the reserves and now you're reentering the civilian world? What did you do? Uh, school. Where'd you go to school for?
1: Um, anything I can get as quick as possible because I was 20. <laughs> Four years old, and I wanted to get out of school because my contemporaries were very young, and I just wanted to get out. So I went. I tried to jam through that as quick as I could.
0: And what'd you get a degree in?
1: History, and then a minor in business.
0: And and then what'd you do?
1: Um, well, one of the uh, actually before school started, I hitchhiked around the world. So at that time, you could hitchhike around the world. And I wanted to see the world and see what was going on, you know? And so we started in uh, LA, and we got. In those days, you could get a car, and if you drove it to New York, they would pay for the gas. So it was free, because we had, only had $1,200 to Who's go around paying? the world. Uh, it was a service. Instead of transporting it, they let people drive it across. God, right? So. It's like we, an early form of Uber. Really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was you drive Uber, right? So we got in this car, and this car was a brand new, um, God, what was it? Something British, right? And it could go good. Oh, like it an could, MG or something? No, no. It, it was better than an MG. Really? I can't remember what it was. But it was small, but it was really Triumph? Fast. Maybe a Triumph? So, no, it was... It was something pretty nice.
0: I can't imagine a worse decision than someone getting <laughs> Bill Posey straight out of NOM, a freaking fast British car to drive across country. And gas money, free <laughs> gas, gas money. This is bad decision. No wonder this kind of Uber didn't work out. Dude, you ruined it.
1: <laughs> so we get this car on a like a Friday uh, afternoon, and you have to call the guy and say, okay, we're leaving Los Angeles right now, and we'll be there maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, right? So 49 hours later, we get to New York City, and we call the guy, and he said, hey, we're here. He said, you're here. 49 hours (laughs) to go 3,000 miles? Well, we left, we really left earlier (laughs) than Friday, right? And we were literally going a lot, 100 miles an hour across the nation. And at that time, you could really go, right? And so then we just got on airplane. At that time, the cheapest airline was Icelandic Airline, but you had to spend three days in Iceland. So that was cool, right? Who are you with? You, oh, you? my travel friend, uh, a, a guy that I'd known for 10 years. He was really a great guy. Just another guy from Linwood that you yeah. grew up with? Yeah. He was really, he's a big dude. And that worked out well for us because hitchhiking could be a little iffy at times. Mm-hmm. And then we got to. Uh, where we pulled wherever we pulled in Europe, but they had a real late winter, and we didn't have any winter clothes, so we only stayed in Europe for like a month and then we went down <laughs> to uh we went down to uh israel and If you wanted to work in Israel, so we went and got a job at a kibbutz in Israel for three months, so that was really good. And what were you doing there? uh just working on this uh kibbutz, and I was a beekeeper, and so they made me a beekeeper so then, and then a painter. And so we were doing that and they paid us $5 a month and free room and board. But that was cool because then we could see all the sites in Israel cuz I always wanted to go to Israel, right? And pay and at that time you could hitchhike all over Israel. Anybody would pick you up. And let's say you're going from Haifa where we were down south to you know the Dead Sea or whatever. You could do that. It was really good. And we left there and just started hitchhiking across the world.
0: Is this like 1970 or so? Uh, 71,
1: yeah, 71, I think.
0: Yeah, and what's the when you're when you're home from Vietnam, and you know you're talking about earlier, you know people are they think you're a soldier. They're looking down. And you. Did you feel that once you oh, got yeah, back?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I really had regret that I didn't stay in the military because. Uh, you know, the people wouldn't have anything to do with you. Of course, as soon as you got out, you let your hair grow a little longer, you know, and so that you fit in more mm-hmm. rather than, you know, not having any hair. So that kind of masked what was going on. But, I mean, the you know, the hippies were just plain, you know, nasty. I mean, they, they the thing I hated about them, they had dirty knees and dirty elbows. They didn't take shower all the time. And they stunk, and they smelled like marijuana. I mean, it was really nasty, you know. And the women were—I mean, they didn't keep themselves up. It was—it was bad. So I had no inkling there that I wanted to be a hippie. I just didn't. <laughs> I don't get
0: any inkling that you were much of a hippie no. <laughs>
2: either.
1: <laughs> Nobody wanted to be a well. No, none of my ilk wanted to be a hippie, right? So,
0: so you, how long did this uh, did this Hitchhiking scenario last
1: about ten months. Took us ten months to go around the world.
0: Did you keep going? Did you keep heading east after you got to Israel?
1: Oh yeah, we hitchhiked across. Well, that time you couldn't go to an Arab country after Israel, so you had to go to Cyprus, then from Cyprus to Turkey. Then we just started hitchhiking in Turkey, and made it across Afghanistan, and then through India. You know, and we could make it to Bangladesh. Well, Bangladesh was eat. East Pakistan at the time. They didn't have Bangladesh because a lot of countries change, you know, since then. And we made it there. Then we had to get on an aircraft because we couldn't go across Burma. And, you know, go we, we did go to Burma, spent a couple of days there then to – japan and back to the states sometimes you either had to fly or be on a ship Mm -hmm. because you can't hitchhike in the water right
0: (laughs) (laughs) and did you feel like at the end at the end of that that you had sort of gotten your fill of and seen what you wanted to see
1: yeah and and for that sector yeah but you know i really i always we did a westpac you know with uh, uh, uh udt so we saw you know china which is hong kong at the time and japan and stuff so you know but then the next year i went to school and then we took the summer off we got student loans to travel in the summer not to go through school because we had the gi bill right and so got student loans and we hitchhiked to chile and came back with a three-month period so that was good
0: what are you doing on the when you're in chile what are you doing for instance
1: we're just hitchhiking and seeing what's going on with the people, you know, because then you travel with the people and you really see what's going on. You really see, rather than being on an airplane, Mm -hmm. you see their mode of transportation what they eat. And, you know, we never had a problem. Never had a problem.
0: You said you did a Westpac with UDT. When was the Westpac with UDT? No,
1: that was during Vietnam. I mean, that was called a Westpac. Got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. And being on board ship for that 2 months, we did sailing too. Mm-hmm.
0: So then you do this trip. Now now you get back to California yeah. and now you got to like grow up kind it, of.
1: Well, no, then it was then I had a very serious major in college. It was beer and women. <laughs> and so uh, I was I, I excelled. <laughs>
0: Where did you go to college when you got back? Uh
1: Orange Coast College and uh Orange County.
0: And you continued to study history? Is that what you studied? Yeah,
1: because it was the quickest way of getting out of college.
0: And you just wanted to get out and get some kind of a job? Just
1: wanted to rock and roll, that's right. Just go get some kind of work so I could make money.
0: Then, what, was it two years that you finished college?
1: No, it was actually, I had to start over because I took a lot of stuff that wouldn't transfer to an academic major because I took a practical art Mm -hmm. with auto mechanics but then it took me like a year and a half to get out of junior college, and another year and a half to get out of, you know, big boy college.
0: And then what? What? what then happened? I went to
1: work. I went to work for machinery manufacturer. Then I got back into the reserves.
0: And what year did you get back in the reserves?
1: Oh geez, maybe seventy-five. I think they. You know, I told you earlier that I had COVID real bad, and I lost part of my memory. So I I have a hard time with dates and names. I just can't remember what it was. Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, that might not have anything to do with COVID. It might do the fact (laughs) that it's (laughs) 40-something years ago, and you didn't really care at the time. You're like, hey, I'm going back in the reserves, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I find myself, I can't remember sometimes what platoons I was in because people are like, I did this platoon, this platoon. I'm like, oh, yeah, what platoon was that? I kind of forget sometimes when it's like your whole life for a year yeah, and a yeah. half is your platoon. <laughs> and I'm like, what kind of idiot am I that I don't remember what platoon I was at? I can usually back the, uh, deconstruct what it was right. and figure it out. So you go back in the reserves. and But you, when you're back in the reserves, are you part of the UDT reserves? Yes.
1: They started it then, whenever that was.
0: And then And then what are you doing, one weekend a month? Yeah and you're going down and drinking beer and doing beach reconnaissance.
1: No, no. I mean, it actually looked UDT really cleaned up because then they saw what SEAL team did that cut the way for us. So we would do more SEAL team things uh, than we would do UDT because UDT was a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. So that was really good. And so we did that. I did that. And then, um, you know, I don't know how many years I did that then I got out for a while then I came back in like 86 and came back in the reserves and uh then you know it was, it was you know that was really good
0: and then the I know in that book uh Naval mentioned that in the fir- when the first Gulf War kicked off yeah you rogered up and said hey send me what happened with
1: that well I got um, I wasn't fully qualified on a couple of things and so they wouldn't send me. And so, you know, that was cool and that just made me work harder to get up to speed on everything. So it just didn't work out. But, you know, what can you do? I mean, if you're not if you don't have those quals, mm-hmm. you don't have those quals. Like what
0: quals didn't you have? Like dive Soup or something or yeah, whatever I mean, just like the standard kind of seal yeah, leader quals. Yeah. Just stuff
1: like that cuz I got in a year before but I I kind of evolved. I was 40 years old, I think, at the time. I can't remember how old I was. And you know you're not going to run and gun like these studly dudes right here, right? You're not going to do it because you can't do it, mm-hmm. right? No matter how much you work out or, you know. And so I said, you know, I really have to find my place and see where I'm an asset. And so— the training department was really good for me because there was a big paper push there, and I got to work in training, and then I got to go to a lot of places. I could volunteer. I would volunteer for 30 to 60 days a year to go to exercises to support the teams, so that was really good for me, you know, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and so I learned a lot because of that. What do you
0: remember about when, you know, UDT 13 got decommissioned and then UDT 11 and 12 sunsetted and became SEAL Team 3, and SEAL Team 5 and 83. So you were were you still in the reserves at that no, time? No, I wasn't in.
1: And so that I did I missed that process. And then of course the funding and I don't know cuz I wasn't there but that's what I think happened. The funding process and the leadership process went from the Navy from Big Navy to SOCOM. Mhm. And so I'm sure people listening to this that live that will find fault with me on my facts, but it was a different world. Mm-hmm. The Navy, y- you know this, team guys wear thin very quickly, right? <laughs> very <laughs> quickly. Wear out our welcoming me? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Wear it out. And you have to really protect yourself against that because then the other units won't work with you. And if they won't work with you, you can't do it by yourself.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, well, we definitely learned that lesson over time of, yes, you know, just getting to, to working with your counterparts and giving them the support that you can give. Absolutely. Because then they'll support you back. Right. So after the first Gulf War where you got denied, but then you realized, all right, I got to figure out how I can help, what I can do. And you stay in the reserves for the next 10 years. And then September 11th happens. Uh, yes. Where, where were you at September in September 11th? Uh,
1: September, I was actually going to go to work for uh, the boats and help promote their recruiting, okay? And so uh, that was on the 10th of December. I mean, 10th of September. Whew. And so I was going to go work with them, like at a DOD job to help promote that or be an active reservist. They hadn't worked it out. So then they said, on the 10th, they said, don't calm down because we're not using it. We'll give you a call the next week and tell you because we don't have your funding uh, appropriated yet. And so on the 11th, my friend calls me and he says, have you watched the TV? And I would worked all night because I was was flipping houses, right? Mm And I worked out all night on this one property, and I went home, and he calls me at eight o'clock in the morning. He says, "You seen the TV?" And I said, "No." He says, "Get down and watch a TV." So then, that's where the towers. He said. So I call the unit, and I said. Hey, I'm available. What, what, what's going on? Don't come because the base was, were you in at that Lockdown. time, Commander?
0: I was I was actually going to college. Okay. The Navy had me in college at that time, and I was doing the same thing. I was calling my detailer yeah. and saying, hey, sir, I'll quit college right now. <laughs> I'll finish this stuff later. I don't care. And, you know, I had this conversation with him. It, it was it was Admiral pivis, and he oh, really? I had worked for him before, and he was an awesome boss.
1: Yeah, he's a great guy.
0: And when yeah. September 11th happened, I called him. And said, "Hey, I'll do anything. You know, send me back to SEAL Team. I don't need my degree. I'll do my degree online, whatever." Right. And what's cool is, you know, I think I'm, you know, being all default aggressive and stuff. But I talked to him a couple of years ago. Actually, I talked to him and his wife. And guess what? Every guy yeah. that wasn't at a team right. was calling up saying, "Hey, I'm ready to go. I'm right. ready to go." That's that's the community. It's everyone wanted to get to go fight. That's what we do.
1: World War Two guys are calling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: Yeah.
0: So you call up and you would and what they tell you?
1: They Don't said, "Don't come to base." Don't come to base. It's a lockdown, but come because they could activate me on reservist orders, and because I knew it was going to happen because we had some of those same problems in Vietnam here, and so I'm good at making little things happen, and so they. I went down there, I think, on a Friday. I think uh, 9-11 was on a Tuesday. I just can't remember. And so then I went down there that Friday and then went to Group 1 and started working some issues that they had, especially activating reservists. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because so, all of a sudden we needed to man up yeah, all kinds of positions.
1: Right. a lot of positions. And the team's guys, team positions that team guys didn't want to do, mm-hmm. and rightfully so, but mm-hmm. it was good – to get the reservists back in to that line of fire so that they could, you know, because you you know, you gotta get it on, mm. you know, I mean it takes a while to get up to speed.
0: So the war kicks off in Afghanistan. At what point did you did you get on the on the freaking launch pad to go to Iraq?
1: Uh,
0: now, how old were you at that point? Um two thousand and three is when you went?
1: No, uh, I think I went in either 2002 or 2003, Mm -hmm. I can't remember, but before the war, just before the war started. So what happened is I'm there working for group, and I um, would—a great guy that I really, really love, Jimmy Barron, Master Chief Mm Barron, I don't know if you remember him, sir— Master Chief Barron was working on the DPVs. They actually pulled them out of storage. A DPV is a dune buggy looking thing Mm -hmm. with a, is it a 50 or a 60 on the top? I can't remember. Right? I think
0: it could be either or. Yeah.
1: You you could go either way on that. like being, no, I shouldn't say that. Little joke, but uh, I'll refrain there. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, he pulled those out of storage and he was really good wrench turner. I mean, he was fabulous. He was a guru and so i i asked him i said you know i'm here at group can i support you guys and he says well you can't do it during the day but you can come at night and so i went there a bit to help them because they were trying to push that stuff out the door before christmas Mm -hmm. right and so uh, i go down there and i'm turning a wrench in there at like three o'clock in the morning Saying, well, it's about time. We have to be back here at 6. It's about time we went home, you know, that type of thing. Baron is a great guy in this whole, f- uh, I think there was nine guys involved with Baron on those three or four DPVs. Maybe it was more. And so I got to work with them because I wanted to go forward, right? So my boss at Group 1, I said, they, they had, as soon as we come on board, they, they have a thing in the conference room and they said okay who wants to go forward who wants to go to the war everybody raises their hand mm-hmm. and my my civilian boss he looks at me and he says "Posey, he says you're too old you're too fat you're too stupid you're the <laughs> last guy we're gonna send. we're gonna send the cleaning lady before we're gonna send you i said no you're not you're gonna send me he says no way in hell okay and i said yeah you're gonna send me so he was why was I arguing with my boss, right? To do have him do me a favor and send me overseas, right? Who would do that? I was stupid. And so so he was right. Yeah. <laughs> so he he says uh he says, "No, we got to, a lot of work for you to do. We got to push all these guys out because, you know, the the reserves at that time weren't really we had kind of a a looser type of reserve unit, and they weren't deployed that often. So some of them had ID cards that weren't current. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was, you know, and their wills were from three wives back in 1972, you know, and you had to bring all that, a mountain of paperwork that usually took four or five days. And we were trying to facilitate these guys through the system to get them out the door, you know, and to get them – you know, just basic training, because we didn't do a lot of chemical training, basic chemical training and all that kind of thing. So I was doing that, and I was working DPVs at night, and finally Master Chief Baron uh, leaves uh, the twenty. I think it was the 26th of December. And, uh, and so I said, man, I was really hoping I could go with those guys. So anyhow, they have, like, A couple of weeks later, they said, we need somebody to go over uh, to um, there to help service vehicles on Humvees because we never had a lot of Humvees. We never had a lot of vehicles in CLT, Mm -hmm. especially there was no up armor, Mm -hmm. no armor. And they were putting Humvees out of uh, of the surplus storage from the Army. I mean, they were just thrashed, right? So I said, you know, I'm really good mechanic. I didn't never. I never opened a hood of a Humvee, right? <laughs> Didn't have a clue. I said, "I'm really a good mechanic, and I think you should send me." They're looking at me. I was 56 years old, right? So, eventually, because they couldn't find anybody better than me, which was the first rung of the ladder. I mean, uh, <laughs> they said, "Okay, you're you're going you're going you're going over, and you're going to work on these Humvees." Da, 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 da. I said, "Well, what are we going to do about tools?" And they said, "Well." Baron has all the tools and he has all the stuff. But everybody knows in any given wartime situation that you don't, whatever you need the most, you never get. I mean, if you need that special gun or whatever it is, it never shows up, right? So I go to Harbor Freight and I buy this gigantic box of tools because I know that those, you know, those assets aren't going to be there. And so I took my box of tools and they— they hadn't got their tools, all their tools, and they're coming over to borrow. They had all snap-on stuff, you know, with a snap-on shirt and, <laughs> you know, the $10,000 box. Just the box alone was $10,000. <laughs> right. I got my Harbor Freight 298 <laughs> uh, Crescent <laughs> wrench, right? And so, oh, Posey, can we, we really need a uh, a number 11 metric uh, end wrench. You got it? Of course I got it. <laughs> 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 so they sent me over, and they had these— uh, these uh, Hilux Toyotas that Mm -hmm. they were going to use on the initial invasion, and they put winches and all kinds of different stuff on them. But the Hilux shows up, but all the other stuff's not put on. So that was my, I think, the first couple of weeks that I was putting on all the stuff to the Hiluxes to get them out. And then uh, we had a lot of servicing of Humvees and all that and a lot of reorg stuff, and so then uh, they were looking for people to go forward who's going to go in this (laughs) position me god come on come on we're scraping the bottom of the barrel here (laughs) Jeez, louise and so uh so i'm stuck back at the base and i'm doing different stuff that i really don't like to do and i'm listening you know to see when a chance of me going forward what's what's the need what kind of talent that i have because i think most of us marine corps in different facets of society we have a place in society like I'm not a leader at all I'm a follower but I'm a real good follower the command you know commander's intent I want to hear the commander's intent then I want to explore with the commander what that intent is I want to know what it really means because sometimes the words don't convey what that person really thinks I want to know how I can support that person any way possible you know what's his real meaning? What's those words coming out of his mouth? How can I help? If I can make my sailors uh, have whatever they need and they're happy, and then secondary that if I can make my boss look good, and then the Navy look good, then it's cool, right? Yeah, it's cool. I mean, everybody's cool because that's they want you around. Then if you get they say, well, who did this, and and. They say, Posey did it. And so it was a good thing, right? I mean, you know, you did this right or whatever. And I say, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was my two subordinates, Smuckatelli and <laughs> Girardelli here. So I always try to defer that or push it back to my boss because that's what makes you valuable. And if you need a favor sometime, those people will come forward. And I learned that in Vietnam we, when we would go to these different places, uh, they would leave like flags and pictures of different things and China and pottery. Then we were able to take those assets to the guys that were on the Navy bases. And if we needed, you know, cases of sea rats at the time, or would you guys mind, you're unloading all this beer out of this ship and would you guys mind pushing a pallet of this beer off the dock and let it fall into the water and then we'll retrieve it and I'll trade you this Viet Cong flag with genuine Vietnam blood, they didn't know it was pig's blood, with a couple (laughs) bullet holes that we shot in a parking lot. Uh, (laughs) We would really appreciate that, you know? So we could barter our way in Vietnam because we had no money, we had no assets. We could barter our way uh, into different things and then I knew because so many people hadn't been to the war since Vietnam. Well, they did, of course, they did the 96-hour war, mm-hmm. and they did other little wars, but they didn't have a supply trade. I knew that I could be valuable there securing assets for my team. We only had 44 guys originally in, in Baghdad. So before I went, I, I went on the Internet, and I bought—I uh, should have bought 12. I bought six Iraqi flags— and I took them with me, and then I took uh, $550 of cash of small bills and another $500 in large bills because I knew that they, as soon as we won that the uh, currency would be no longer valid and that you could buy that currency at a bargain rate and be able to do something with that currency, right? And so when the war started, I mean, when the war ended, as far as George Bush calling it off, nobody knew what to do with the currency. So before it was like a 16 to one ratio with Iraqi currency for the American dollar. And and then by the time Bush called the war off, it was in limbo and you could do a thousand to one. You could literally buy, I, I turned my $550 into Iraqi dinar and I could buy a box of money, a box of money, okay? And so, but there was nothing to buy. Yeah. There's nothing to buy. The, 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 the sanctions really worked in Iraq. There was nothing to buy. And so um, I had all this money, and I had the f- I brought the flags, and I was trading because we don't have, in SEAL team, when I got to Iraq, we don't have a logistics tail, right, at that time. Now mm-hmm. we have a logistics mm-hmm. tail. They got so much smarter. But we didn't. I was the logistics tail. <laughs> and as soon as we get we we went
0: uh, real quick so you yeah. were in, you were in kuwait yes when you were preparing to go yes they're saying hey we need someone to so so the Troops push up into Baghdad. Yes, you're still in Kuwait. Right. Finally, they go. Look, we need someone to help up us up there. We got vehicles to maintain. Right. We got to build a base. Right. They're looking around. They keep looking past you, and finally, right. they freaking got right. no choice but to send the said old man up there <laughs> to go get something. I'm, I'm the last fish in the <laughs> barrel, right? So, what do you, do you do? you Jump on a helo and fly up to, to Baghdad International no, Airport, or did you drive up?
1: No, no, no. So they tell me, uh, they tell me, I, I was or at the team area in Kuwait. Now, as a team, you could hitchhike real easy though, and it was really quick. I love hitchhiking because you meet a lot of interesting people. But anyhow, I have my own vehicle because I'm the like the uh the go-to guy mm-hmm. to get things done for whatever, you know, little things, you know, somebody's got this or they need that or whatever. So, they tell me at 5 minutes after 1 in, in Kuwait, they said you have to be at uh help me with the uh, name of the airbase. Byap. No, oh, Al-Asad. al al Uh you have to be at the Al Assad uh, by two o'clock, and you're getting on an airplane, and you're going to Baghdad, and they're going to drop you off there at Baghdad, you and Barron. I said, D- Dude, it's five minutes after one, and it's like 70 miles. <laughs> how in Iraq, I mean, in Kuwait, how the hell am I going to? He says, You got to be there. Get in your car and go. Shut up. <laughs> So I get in my car and I got this rental car and I'm going literally 100 miles an hour down the Iraqi, I mean the Kuwait freeway. Luckily they didn't stop me, and I get there at 10 minutes, no, it's 12 minutes to two, and I tell Baron, Baron, get your stuff, and we're going to Iraq. He said, Posey, what do you got me into? I said, I got things going here. I can't. I said, this. Is, I I showed him the orders. I had a set of orders for him. He said, oh, my God, you dumbass.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so we, we throw all the stew. I get my toolbox and throw it in there. And, and, and I mean, we're just jamming stuff in this rental vehicle. And we get there. <coughs> we get to the, the C-130 at one minute to two, okay, <laughs> one minute to two. And the guy's looking at me. The crew chief's looking at me. He said, what are you doing? I said, we got orders. Here's our orders. He said, yeah, you got orders. We know who you are. He, I said, well, what's going on? Let's go. He says, 200.
2: Oh. Zero <laughs> 200.
1: <laughs> Too much time in the civilian world for you, huh? <laughs> no, but they told me two o'clock. <laughs> no, they said, you got, I mean, oh, my God. So we go back and we pack our stuff and we actually put underwear in our, in our sea bag and the whole thing, right? And so we're there. And so... We thought we were going to go to Biop, right, mm-hmm. to Baghdad International, Saddam Hussein International mm-hmm. Airport, right. And so these guys get us in there, and they they go on the red light in in the aircraft. They said, "Well, what's going on? Where are we going?" He said, "Well, we're going to a road about forty miles outside of uh, out of Baghdad to meet your guys." I said, "Really?" And they have this pallet of stuff in in the aircraft, and I said, "Okay." Sounds good. Uh, we're going in, no lights, no nothing. We're going to be on this highway outside of Baghdad, right? Me and Jimmy Barron. Posey, I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> what kind of you – because know, the guy's been to, you know, a ton of stuff. I mean, he's it, – it's like talking to Michael Jordan. That's that's Master Chief Barron, right? I mean, he's the man, right? The man. And dumbass worn Officer Posey is telling him what to do. So – so we get there, and he says, okay, we're going down. We're going to go into this highway. We're going to turn around, and we're going to do a 5-and-5 five five on you. And I said, really? I said, well, you got these? you know. I said, okay, well, you're going to ride the pallet out, right? I said, okay, good. So we jump on this pallet. Well, it wasn't a 5-and-5. Five five. They were on actually on the deck, right, and they let us out of this aircraft, and we are going about 20 miles an hour, but we just rode the pallet out. And our guys, and we— we have all this ammunition and all this stuff that they needed. And so uh, uh, we, we immediately head over to this hedge and just sit there for about a half hour. And our guys eventually, uh, they knew we were there, but they were afraid that some, you know, the Iraqis were going to get on us. And so then we go the next day, we go in on these six buys uh, to, to Baghdad, and we go along the road, and people are clapping. We love George Bush. We love George Bush. Really? They love George Bush. I mean, all along the highway, they're telling us that. I said, my God, I should have took a picture of that because they didn't love us after a couple of weeks, right? Mm -hmm. So we go to buy up. There's nobody there. So we go to Al Lundy Palace. No, the first, no, I'm sorry. We go to the CIA headquarters, the Iraqi CIA headquarters, and we're— we're mustering there for a day or two, so we get in there and what they did is they used a J dam and they collapsed the, s- the six-story Iraqi CIA headquarters uh, down. They pancaked it down to two two um, sections of the building that survived, and so there was cordite and concrete dust everywhere, and it was very hard to breathe. And so we go in there, and I said, well, you know, we had to go. Uh, we ought to go to uh, these offices. The top offices should be a head dude in the Iraqi CIA, right? The, the, the head guy has the top office. We ought to go see what we can see. So we make our way through all this construction stuff, destruction stuff, and we go to the top office, and it's Uday's office, right? And so I open the desk drawer of Uday's office, and he's got these uh, chrome sunglasses that like Elvis wore, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, and, and the guy I was with, um, the chief that I was with, he, he grabs his glasses and then he had on his desk a picture of him in these glasses and so he grabs that and he says, okay, which one do you want? I said, I'll take the glasses and he says, okay. So he takes the picture and I I take the glasses, so I got Uday's glasses. So we stay there a couple of days, and then I go out that morning that we're supposed to leave because I wanted to make sure the vehicle was serviced and ready to go, Uh, because we had gasoline, we had ammunition, we had mortars, we had all kinds of stuff on this six-by truck, and I think we had three or four vehicles. So I'm up in the cab of this truck making sure everything's done, and I have my bayonet that I had in Vietnam and I'm sitting in the seat like this and my bayonet gets stuck in this MTVR truck there and then they start shooting at me. Uh, you know, and it's just, I mean, it's five o'clock in the morning, the sun just come up and they're shooting at me, right? I say, man, I got to get out of this truck because it could go, you know, if they hit the gasoline, God knows what's going on. So I'm trying to get out of this truck and I'm trying to, Push this stupid bayonet over to the side. And I'm pulling, I'm pulling. And I go out the side of the truck, and I didn't see this culvert right here. And I go, I do the big crash. I got my weapon across my chest and my battle rattle. And, man, it's killing me. It's killing me. And so uh, I get out of there, and I walk back there and, you know, whatever. And we go. Then we go to Al Rundi Palace. And... Uh, we said, well, the army's going to come in here to buy up, and they're going to run things because they're the 800 pound gorilla, right? Mm-hmm. They're always the 800 pound gorilla, no matter where we go. We shouldn't. This, the commander's making this decision. We should go find another place because we don't want to get kicked out once we start improving it. So we go down to the servants' quarters, and they have some nice little buildings there, but they burn off uh, out some of the buildings, and they stole all the air conditioning and the wiring and the walls and everything. And so we go in there, and that's that's our that's our Camp Jenny Posey, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't Jenny Posey at the time. And so we go there. It's Neptune, Trident, you know, every SEAL team named it known to man. <laughs> so we start improving that camp because we know we're going to have a, a lot of people laid on in that camp, you know, just not the 18 that we originally started with. So we go to this camp, and we start improving it. And I don't know if you know uh, Ranger— I don't want to say his last yeah, name. Yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah. We're, I'll call him Ranger, right? Yeah. And this guy's a master. I mean, cause, <laughs> so we're in Biop, and we're the only, the only people in Biop. And there's some little, you know, skirmishes and stuff out of town, but there's not a whole lot going in. So we're going to Biop, and we're going to the army, and it's like being with a, a rock star. People are saying, I mean, he's driving this Humvee, right, John? john we haven't seen you since grenada john we haven't seen you since panama how you doing i mean the guy's a rock star there in the army right i said man i'm i'm happy that i know this guy and so we do that then people start coming in and we had a real good op tempo to begin with Mm -hmm. seal team was really kicking ass okay we had great commanders great platoon chiefs i mean everybody I mean, because we thought the war might be a 96-hour war mm-hmm. like it was the first Gulf War. So we want to get as much experience as possible, right? Yep. Little did we know we'd be there 22 years later, 21 <laughs> years later. So so we're there improving the camp and this, and then uh, we're there one day, and, and we have a morning meeting at 8 o'clock with everybody in the camp. And John comes in, and he says, he's swearing and he never swore he never swore and he swore he says i'm so sick of this uh, he tells the commander right there i'm so sick of this we're changing the name of this camp uh, nobody knows where this camp we've changed the name of this camp 15 times since we've been there the army doesn't know where they changed the name you know we're naming this camp camp bill posey and i, I look at him i said are you out of your mind are you out of your mind only dead people or very courageous people have a seal a seal team camp named after him are you crazy he says no we're doing that we're announcing it at the mayor, the meeting tonight <laughs> i said john don't don't do that just just let me have time to think about it so as soon as the army came in they cut us off our op tempo we had no operations going because they were afraid of us right they wanted to homogenize everything and make everything happen the way they want it to Mm -hmm. happen. And rightfully so, Mm because they're going to swing, it probably won't be us, right? So I go to the morning meeting, the, the mayor's meeting, and I said, hey, I got some great news. We're going to rename our camp after an Army person because SEAL team has the greatest respect ever for the Army, and we love what you guys are doing here at BIOP, and we think we want to honor you. And and people say, Posey, what are you talking about? Sit down, you dumbass. I said, no, no, we want to do this. And they said, okay, no problem. So I go back to my guys, and I say, okay, let's name the camp. I had to name it after an Army person, right? Uh-huh. And it was either Audie Murphy or my daughter, who was a JROTC cadet at UCLA. UCLA? <laughs> uh, yeah. So <laughs> we're, we're going to name the camp either Audie Murphy or my daughter, who's a ROTC cadet at thing. So he said, okay, we're going to name it after your daughter. So we named the camp Camp Jenny Posey, right? So. That was very, and I can't believe, I mean, John coming in there and saying that and people going along with it, why would he do that? I just, I never figured that out, but it worked and and it, it was really nice of him and nice of the command to allow that to happen because I did not deserve it. I'm not Ma- Mike Monsoor or any of those other very courageous dudes, and I wasn't dead yet. So I thought that might be some bad juju, you know what I'm saying? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it was it was awesome. I ended up spending six months at, at Jenny Posey in two thousand three, two thousand four, and what was cool was and there's a classic picture of this, and I'll find it and get it posted somewhere. But the, you know, we go out do our operations and we go out for however many hours or days we'd be out for, and when you get back to camp, there was a big sign on the camp door, and it was it was a pretty good selection for the space because we could come, we could shut this big giant gate and it would just be no, there'd be no one on there but us. But on the, you, you guys made this big giant sign that said, welcome home to Camp Jenny Posey. And it was just an awesome sight. When you'd come back, no matter what happened out there, you'd come back, you'd see that big sign and be like, all right, we're, we're good to go. So that was, uh, that was, that was the way it should be. And it's a pretty freaking legendary situation to have.
1: It was different.
0: so how long did you end up staying there in Iraq because you ended up did you end up getting hurt something happened to you
1: well when I jumped out of the truck Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know it at the time but I broke my back but you know I I went to the army that day when we pulled into Biop, and I said man you guys got to give me something because my back is killing me and the guy says "Uh, okay let me examine you and so he says you don't have a medical record, so I got an MRE box and put medical record. Bill Posey, here it is. Here's my medical record, right? And he says, "Well, I'm going to send you back to Germany." And uh, I said, "No, you're not. You're not." Gonna send me. He says, "Yeah, you got your medical record here, and I'm going to send you back." I took that medical record and I walked <laughs> out of there. And he was lucky. I got some pills, some pain pills before that, so that knocked it down. It it wasn't, you know, it wasn't terribly debilitating. So. Uh, it, it worked out. so.
0: Did you roll out on any ops with the boys? Oh,
1: yeah, I got to do
2: 30, I think.
1: <laughs> but, you know, being 56 years old, of course, you know, well, Grandpa's here, and he he's going to, you know, he, he doesn't have all of his teeth, but, you know. But, you know, I was always in the C2 unit, you mm-hmm. know, in a backup, so if something happened, at least we could get the squirters, you know, mm-hmm. and all that and, and, and at least take care of them. Or if we had to, you know, go help those guys in a QRF situation, mm-hmm. we were always available, you know. So that was good, you know. I really enjoyed that. I, I, I really appreciate them allowing me to do that. I don't know if I'd have been an asset or a deficit, you know. So.
0: Well, I can tell you, the, you know, the having the vehicles out there, you never know when something's going to go wrong with a vehicle. Yes, sir. And to not have a good right. mechanic there to ready to get those things up and running. And like you said, those... Those Humvees that we had, because we got those Humvees turned over to us right. when we showed up a couple months after you left, same, those things were beat down, yeah. hand-me-downs, you know, scavenged Marine different Marine Corps parts. hand-me-dance.
1: Yeah, I believe they yeah, came out of the Marine Corps. Some
0: of them were Marine Corps. Some of them were, C, we got some from some CB somewhere. <laughs> we got some, some reservists somewhere, canvas doors. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were a total disaster, but you guys got them up and running, and we kept, you know, we kept working on them. And you know what was awesome was it didn't take very long like you said, the SEAL teams, not only did we not have vehicles, but prior to this, we didn't have any vehicle procedures either. We didn't, right. know, we didn't know anything. We just, we would, we actually thought that vehicles, it was kind of a joke in the SEAL teams. If you got inserted by a vehicle, we'd call it a, a helo truck. Right. Meaning, hey, we're right. just pretending this is a helicopter, but we don't really have one we didn't realize like this is gonna be our primary mode of transportation is gonna be the Humvee, not even the DPVs or any of these high-speed vehicles. For a solid three years there in the middle, it was a Humvee and that was it, that's what you were getting.
1: And not up-armored.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, not up-armored.
1: At least not in the beginning.
0: No, not in the beginning and we ended up doing Mad Max kind of things, we'd end up with finding the, the, the bulletproof steel, eventually right. we'd put that on various parts of the Humvee to try and protect you as much as you could. Yeah, the first few months we were there we we had turned the seats in the Humvees to face outboard so that our 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 body armor would be facing outward and we could sit there and scan. But I mean it was because we took the canvas door. What the good is the canvas going right. to do? Not going to do you any good at all. And so we we did what we could. But we but what was really impressive? Not only do we get the vehicles up to speed, and then we were doing all like the NASCAR drills of figuring out how to t- change tires really quick and rigging for tow. All those things we rigged all that stuff up all the navigation systems, which we got from this, the civilian sector of, of, you know, just taking a GPS and coupling it with a, with a a portable computer. And so we'd have the live feed GPS going in there. It's all stuff that we just figured out. And then all the actual immediate action drills, we did all that within a very short period of time because, and it's one of the, one of the strong points of the SEAL teams and one of the weak points of the SEAL teams, one of the, Weak points of the SEAL teams is we didn't really have any standard operating procedures for a lot of things. There's no manual, like in the Army, you can pick up a manual and it will show you how to conduct a raid. You can pick up a manual can show you how to conduct a reconnaissance. It can show you how to conduct an immediate action drill in the city, in the urban environment, in the rural environment. It, you can pick up a manual to find all those things. And in the SEAL teams, we didn't have that. It was all passed down word of mouth over years. And so you couldn't just pick up a manual and say, oh, refer to the manual on this. That's a disadvantage because it's nice to have somewhere to start from, but it's an advantage because our minds are very flexible and very good at problem solving, and that turns out to be advantageous when you get tasked with a mission that there is no manual for. And that's what we are able to do with working out of vehicles, and we ended up being extremely proficient in vehicle operations very shortly after we started doing them for the first time. Pretty, that's one of the best things about the SEAL teams. Open minds and flexibility,
1: you know. And I, I, from my perspective, it's more than that. That the guys that go into SEAL team, and it's it's got its good points and its bad points, just like you said, Commander. But they're a different breed of people, and I I I really believe that that they can make things happen. I mean, guys just come out of the blue and say, "Yeah, we're going to do this," and we have this process, and it's a legitimate process. And it works. I mean, what a gift from God, you know? It's a gift from God the way a lot of SEAL teams socially, they're weird, but you put them in the battle situation. Am I not right? You're right. Socially, they're as weird as a day is long. Yeah, yeah. You, you, oh, oh, he's coming. He's, <laughs> I, I'll give an example of that. Uh, we had a Medal of Honor winner. Well, before he was Medal of Honor the team bar was the trade winds and go to go the trade winds at 4:30, getting off work and he see you'd walk in the door and they had this screen in front of the door you'd walk in the door see this one guy sitting at the bar you would immediately go down the, around the screen go out because you knew there was going to be a fight in like 15 minutes <laughs> right and the guy turned out to be a medal of honor winner but i mean that's the beauty of the teams that we allow people like that to go in and prosper and contribute to the uh, to the effort. I mean, that's the beauty. Yeah. What a yeah. wonderful thing, a yeah. gift from God. <laughs> yeah.
0: So you, when you got back home from that deployment, what, what came next?
1: Well, can I just go a little oh, yeah. bit? I want you to talk, talk about, about the that charity. Deployment forever. If you would, oh, yeah, mind. that's
0: right, the charity you ran in Baghdad. I,
1: I, I want to talk about that. So uh, I always like to support... Uh, the chaplains because they did a lot of good things for a lot of people right and so I would go talk to the chaplain he happened to be a catholic chaplain and I said "Uh, father what, what can we what can we do for you how can we help you he said man we got this we got this orphanage this Christian orphanage run by German nuns they had three German nuns in Baghdad and they're constantly being harangued by the locals especially since the war started and We could use a little help on that. And I said, well, what do you need? And he says, well, they really need money. And I said, really? They need money. And so um, I went to to the morning mayor's meeting. We had a morning mayor's meeting at 10 o'clock, and it was every unit on BIOP sent a representative, and we would all help each other. The most help they ever gave me is, when the Grom needed gasoline because everything else didn't need gasoline, I got gasoline for the Grom. I was able to trade to the Grom. And then I needed a pair of quadruple E size nine boots. Now who in God's name takes a brand new pair of triple or quadruple E size nine boots? Some guy defoliated his boot, right? And I was able to do that. Uh, to get that, but I was really happy about that, but that cost me some big, uh, big uh, things to do that. So um, I, I say, okay, I, I go to the, the mayor's morning meeting, and I said, okay, after the meeting, they anybody can talk, right after the mayor. I said, okay, there's 44 SEALs here in BIOP, and we want to challenge the Army in a contest. Everybody's looking at me. Posey, sit down, you dumbass. <laughs> okay, you're stupid. I said, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna kick your ass. Okay, I said we're raising money for this Catholic charity uh, downtown buy up, and we will us 44 guys. I think there was 12,000 guys at the base there is gonna outraise the United States Army, a few Marine guys. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna outraise you because these people need money. And they said, oh, you dumbass. And I said, we're going to call it, and I don't, I'm going to just say the guy's first name, John T., and I want to say his last name. And I had this jar in my hand, this big cookie jar like this, clear <laughs> cookie jar. And I had his picture on the front of it with this big lettering, the John T. blank uh, Orphans Fund. And so I, and I had a hole in it where they could stick money, right? So people after the meeting says. You know, my father was in the Navy. Don't let anybody see me put money in this jar, but uh, I, I'm going to put money in this jar, and we're going to get more money for you. And I said, fine. So I go back and I tell our guys, I said we're in this, we're doing this charity thing, and we named it after our Army Ranger John T. And he he comes up and he says, Posey, are you out of your mind? He says, I I don't I don't help orphans. I make orphans. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I said, "You just, you just
1: relax, big boy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of this, right?" <laughs> so, we did this for I think 45 days, and I would taunt them every morning, mayor's morning meeting. I would taunt them, "Oh, SEAL Team now has 10,000 uh, Iraqi dinar. Uh, what are you guys doing? You know, wh- wh- where's the army at? Uh, and the army rep? Well, we got 300." And so I would taunt them every morning, and the people just I mean, they would. I would drive my Humvee down, buy and they'd wave at me and come and give me a handful of money—American dollars, but mainly uh, Iraqi dinar. And so, finally, we ended up with six boxes of money—six medium or small boxes of money—and then we went to the, the nunnery and delivered this money. So we were afraid that by doing that, that we would draw the attention of the Rackys, that they would come and raid these poor nuns and kill them and do whatever for this money, because it was, I mean, I don't know how much money we had, but we had a ton of money. And so they... Uh, the commander, their SEAL team says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a raid on this nunnery and we're going to be very ugly to them when we go in and we go out, uh, so that we can protect them. You know, we're going to act like we're going to hook them and the kids up. And so we did that. And so uh, I go knock on the door and I talk to this kid and I said, I want to deliver something to the nuns. And so, uh, He let me in, and I go talk to them. I said, Sister, we have this. She barely spoke English. We have money for you. Uh, Where would you like it? And she says, Oh, you can just put it on this little card table they had right there. So I mentioned to my guys in the Humvee to come in, and we were doing TOT because we were really worried about spending too much time there, that it was a social call and not some kind of a bad call. And so my guys come in and they're banging on the door with their gun butts and just being ugly when they go, we're gonna get you what you did, you know? They were really good. And he'd break these six boxes of money. And I said, at that time it was very difficult to find cardboard boxes at Biop, it was impossible. And I wanted my boxes back. And I said, where do you want? She says, right there. So we start dumping these boxes of money out. And it was a stack about two feet tall and it's going all over the floor. She looks at me and said, who are you guys? I said, well, I don't know. We're the Army, right? <laughs> so I said, we have, we're doing this. She said, well, why don't you sit down and have lunch with us? We're going to have lunch, and we have Pepsi-Cola. And I said, sister, we're going to be out of here in 30 seconds. We just have to make this look ugly because we don't want them to come and give you a bad time and, and steal this money from you. She says, we understand. So we're banging our way out. You know, and They're pointing the guns at the nunnery and this whole thing. And so we just exfilled. And so um, that I heard later on that that was really good for them because they were really having a hard time financially, you know, feeding. I think they had 60 kids there. So it was really good. And it was really good because the Army really supported us. That's awesome. That's where the bulk of the money came from, obviously. Mm -hmm. And it was really wonderful that they did that. So more power to them, huh?
0: And it's also wonderful that the press didn't pick up any pictures of a young seal holding his weapon aimed at some nun. I'm surprised <laughs> that didn't happen.
1: We don't do too great
0: with the press. No, she, I, no, I made her
1: stay in the house and the kid walked me out. Got it. Because we, we were trying to be very cognizant of that, you know, but we didn't want to leave a trail that they would have problems Oh, after for sure.
0: That. If it looked like they were helping coalition forces, that's right. a death sentence. Right, right. So, good tactic. That worked out. So. So eventually, you, though, you end up in—you did 30 combat operations. You saved a bunch of orphans. I mean, this is just <laughs> Bill Posey on the rampage. You've supplied the whole SEAL teams with everything they needed, repaired 1,000 Humvees. Now, but but you got to a point where you were too banged up and, and you—
1: No, my funding ran out. So I was on reserve funding on non-active duty. My funding— I was on active duty, but the funding from the reserves was paying me. And so then they told me to come back out. And so.
0: Oh, I thought you got injured. You came home because you were hurt.
1: No, but I was hurt. But it didn't didn't bother me. I mean, at the bottom, I don't know, for whatever reason, the bottoms of my feet were killing me. But that, you know, what can you do? Mm -hmm. You know, you got to do what you got to do. So, you know, that was really uh, a good thing. And then they sent me. Uh, 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 this is really funny. Well, maybe it's not funny. The I come back and I this uh, admiral calls me and he says, "Posey, no, it wasn't. It was an army. I mean, a navy captain. Your fundings ran out. You have to go home." And I said, "What do you mean? I have to go home? I'm I'm hurt. I got to get fixed. You got to fix me." He says, "No, no. I'm giving you a direct order. You have to." You have to disengage yourself. And so. Was this, I,
0: was this when you got back to the States? Yeah, got back so to So you the got States. back to the States, you're dinged up. Now you're right. dinged up and you're like, hey, I need to get some medical so, treatment before I.
1: So I look like Chester, right? I'm, <laughs> go, I'm going giving one of these, right? And I said, you guys got to fix me. And so he says, no, I'm giving you direct order. You have to report into the exfil tomorrow. And get out. I said, "Okay." So I go. Of course, a warrant officer. I mean, not that we're brilliant, but we know how the Navy works. We know how the whole thing works. And there's chapter and verse on any given situation. So I go to the instruction. You know, one zero zero three three one. And I look at it, and I pull the instruction out, and I uh, talk to the the captain the next day, and I said, Captain, do you know about uh, instruction 10031? And he says, no, I don't, but I don't care what it is. You will report tonight, this afternoon at 12. I said, no, I won't. I'm not being disrespectful, sir. I talked to my command. Uh, they stand behind me and that you guys have to fix me, and you can't send me home. And he says, well, we'll see about that. So I immediately, I left there, and I went to talk to my congressman, who I knew because I was doing things. And I said, you know, I'm not being disrespectful. I love the Navy. I'm not disrespectful. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not a, uh, you know, seaboard lawyer, (laughs) but you have to fix me. And I was at the clinic every day and I knew all these kids that they were mustering out. I mean, an E3 Marine Corps guy mustering out, they're sending him home and he can't even walk. I mean, he can't do anything, right? And they sent, I think, 60 of those people home. And so I go to my congressman. And I said, sir, you've got to help me. I mean, this is not right what they're doing to all these kids. I can get along. I can make it happen, right, because I can go to the VA or whatever. But it's not right what you're doing to these kids. So he calls the admiral, and they straightened it out. So I'm in six months of rehab, and I went to the clinic there that we have mm-hmm. at SEAL team, and they really helped me. So I was really happy about what was going on there. And, you know, then my time was up and I went home. So it was good. (laughs) (laughs) What did you do when you went home? Um, I started flipping houses again. Mm -hmm. So I'm good at carpentry and that kind of stuff and flipping houses. And then I moved to Texas and I worked for the. Uh, was working in an oil field for a while as a service um, component of the oil field, and then I got the job uh, teaching school.
0: How did you end up in the job teaching school? What made you decide to do that?
1: Uh, because I couldn't do the oil field job. My back. I didn't know my back was broken. Mm-hmm. Right. I didn't know I was just having all these back problems and feet problems, and I thought it was just old age. Of course, we all get old, right? I mean, y- you guys are even feeling it. 25? Yeah, 26. Yeah. 26. Yeah, 26. Okay. <laughs> but, at, at, you know, and so I had to quit that oil field job, and then, uh, and I found this teaching job through this part of our church has this high school. And so the guy calls me in, and he says, you know, you never taught before, and you only have a, a college degree, but you don't have a teacher credential. You know, but, uh, you know, Maybe we can help you. So they hired me. I was lucky enough that they hired me. And so that was really, for the last eight years, been a really good gig for me. My, my objective there is to have those kids not make the same mistakes that I've made. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, you know, and I, I did a lot of stupid things. So,
0: What subject do you teach?
1: Uh, history, government, economics, and art, and Bible.
0: But it's a it, wide range. Yeah,
1: but it's a it's a you know it's a, a small school, so you do everything. You know, we only have like 175 kids enrolled in high school.
0: Are you seeing? Are you getting feedback from kids that graduated four years ago, six years ago, eight years ago that that you had an impact on?
1: Um, yeah, um, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, they tell me, you know, we really loved your class, whatever. Because I tell you know the problem at least my perception i'm I'm probably speaking out of turn but the problem is they treat the kids like kids Mm -hmm. you know how many in world war ii even in vietnam you had these guys who were 16 and 17 years old you know going to the war i mean in world war ii full jihad going on to the war right going to the war you know against the german superpower and we say these kids are kids when they're 18 years old. They're not kids, they're adults. Mm -hmm. Don't baby them. So I try not to baby, them. I just give it to them straight. You know, this is is what's really happening. You know, think, you know. My objective, read, write, be able to present yourself, uh, think, and then act. I mean, if you can think, you're dangerous, right? You're dangerous, you're full on dangerous. Because I, d- I don't think a lot of the schools now want you to think, it's not a good thing.
0: And then what you also apparently now you're you have your own radio show. I do. So what's that all about? How can we listen to that? Oh,
1: uh, I don't think you want to, uh, Commander. Uh, I, I just have this little. We do. We talk politics every morning from six thirty to seven on ninety five point nine Tahano Radio, <laughs> Victoria, Texas, and. Uh, We talk about things that are going on and especially things that are going on in the Republican Party and uh, how we can, you know, fight back from what we think has not been well for us in the the past here, especially the past couple of years. And how old are you right now? I'm going to be 75 in six months.
0: Is there any part of your brain that thinks maybe you're going to, you know, retire and sit on the front porch and drink coffee in the morning and watch (laughs) the grass grow?
1: You know, the problem is I really hate old people. I hate old people. And I don't want to be associated with them. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to do anything with old people. So I really find it, you know, when you're a kid and you have every possibility in the world out there, every possibility that you can do anything you want, right? You can do whatever you want. What a wonderful time in life, Right. Instead of some 70, oh, my back, my side, I mean, they all want to talk about their operations. (laughs) I don't give a rat's ass about their operations, right? I don't care. So I I like dealing with interfacing with the kids and, you know, trying to give it, you know, I don't think it's a not indoctrin well, maybe it is indoctrination, but I'm really big on the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, of the things that your grandfather, my father, your great-grandfather did for America. I mean, let's honor those people. I mean, especially like Memorial Day today, let's honor those folks and thank them for all the wonderful things and allowing us to have the wonderful things that we have in this nation, you know? So that's my objective, You know, teaching school. I am slowing down. COVID uh, was really uh, mentally hard on me and so I hope I don't lose my mind here in the next three years because I hope to teach for the next three years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what that's a freaking about as good of a closing as we could ever hope for here. Echo, you got anything? Usually, if you haven't listened, well you've listened to the podcast. So Echo, you know, speaking, you were talking about some weird social things. Sometimes Echo throws out some weird social questions. Right now, we don't know what's coming. So,
3: actually, more more for clarity than yes, anything. Sir. Back to Apollo Twelve. What yes, was sir. your job there? Like, what was your? Uh,
1: I was the first man out the door, so I would hook the the slow down parachute to the side, and then we would put the capsule, the collar around the capsule, then our decontamination because we thought there was moon bugs. Uh, <laughs> the the decontamination rafts would be inflated, put it on the side. We'd op- the decontamination man would open the door and uh, put the astronauts in the rafts and then they'd go up in the, in the helicopter.
0: Just, so, just to go a little bit further, I think, Echo, I gotta take it back one step. So you remember you've seen the, the, the capsule splashing down into the ocean the capsule from the from from the, from the, rocket. From the rocket yeah like it goes to the moon or whatever it right, goes right. up into space yeah. and then to get back it just splashes down in the middle of the ocean
2: gotcha
0: so somebody's got to go recover that capsule gotcha. and get those astronauts out yeah okay. that's someone UDT, <laughs> UDT That's someone
2: <laughs> Bill Posey coming right. in hot cool.
0: first guy out okay. the door of the helicopter. Of the helicopter. Of the helicopter. Yeah. So the helicopter. And actually, if you go to the USS Midway, yes. they have one of those helicopters. The helicopter. That's
1: the helicopter. 66.
0: Huh? Wait, that's your helicopter 66. that you were on yes, sir. for the 12? Yes, sir. And they've got a little Freddie the Frog on there, ready okay. to get some. Compliments
1: right. of Pete Carroll. He, he he painted that on <laughs> <it>. <laughs> okay. So there okay. you go. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense now? Yeah.
3: It, it, I started to gather that, but, I, yeah, I wanted to make sure that that was the—
1: See, thing. people who lived through Apollo— Just think everybody knows about it. I apologize for not being clear now. No, no, all good. Seemed pretty exciting, though.
3: Kind of a
0: billion people watching it. Oh yeah. And there he is. Crazy. And out the door first. <laughs> yeah, yep. Bill Doing Posey it. from Linwood, California. <laughs> yeah, in full color
2: for
1: mom,
0: <laughs> who was highly selected. Oh, yeah. Highly yeah. selected yeah. through a rigorous program yeah. to and, get there. Making
1: a fool of myself because I can't find a D ring where that? <laughs>
2: well
0: Sir, awesome. I, I, I really can't thank you enough for for, for coming on. And obviously, for your service to the country to the Navy to the teams you know it was it was you guys that that formed our for, you formed who we are in the seal teams in the in the UDTs coming up through Vietnam and then you kept that thread going and you brought it all the way to Iraq to Camp Jenny Posey for us thanks for everything <laughs> thanks for thanks for helping our legacy exist
1: no no let's not let's let's put credit where credit's due. Um, I worked at group one that oversees all the West Coast SEAL teams. And I would deal with SEAL Team 3 all the time. And I would work with uh, uh, you, you, Lieutenant Commander. And it was really great working with 3. I really enjoyed working with 3 because we could really get things done. And thanks for the leadership and everything that you did over there. You were an inspiration to us all. And even though you've written these books, and I don't know if you remember this or not, you wrote something uh, just before I got out, and it was really inspiring what you wrote. And I wrote you back, and I said, man, this is a great piece. You ought to be an author. So, you know, give credit where credit's due. Guys like you that grind it. Right down to the fine dust, and that you can make things happen. Thank you for your service. Yeah, well,
0: we wouldn't have been able to do anything without the the legacy that you guys put forth for us. Uh, so, teamwork and the teams. Amen. Until the end. Airborne. Thank you, sir. Aye. And with that, Warrant Officer Bill Posey has left the building. Some good stuff. Man, about how to be a good frogman and how to be a good human. Yeah, a guy that's been in the game and stayed in the game, right? Yeah. Stayed in the game. Fifty-six years old, rolling out on ops, getting after
3: it. It's it's Freaking funny to year. hear like everyone else or everyone's take on things. You know, you mm-hmm. have various guests and their different takes on things, and like his take on it was kind of like for lack of a better way of putting it like it was just just kind of easy like it was just one big ride that he was on kind of yeah, thing yeah. he was like oh can you imagine
0: showing up to buds which used to be called udt, UDT trout replacement training replacement can you imagine you show up and you think it, you you'd go do i need a book bag? cuz you yeah, think yeah. you're going to a, <laughs> to a freaking educational navy yeah. school and yeah. you're actually entering what's allegedly the toughest military training yeah. you're like whatever yeah what like I surfed and I played water polo, bring it. What do you got? What are we doing? You want me to get wet, be cold? Cool, yeah. watch this, I'm gonna sleep for 15 minutes in the front of the boat. I'll be good when I'm done, right? Yeah. Roger that. Hey, oh, what a- are we going to NOM? Cool. What are we yeah. doing, beach recons? Ro- Roger that. Oh, yeah. we're going on patrols, getting in a swift boat, getting shot up, hiding behind a piece of freaking body armor? Cool, yeah. I'm yes. down. Yep. What, Apollo? Okay, cool. What do I gotta do? Hook the beaner in? Like yeah. he's just getting it dude, <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. I think well, there's a lot of my favorite points of that, but when when I asked him about retiring, he's like, I don't like old people. <laughs> <laughs> what a freaking epic answer. <laughs> yeah. Seventy five years old. Yeah. Whatever.
3: Yeah. He's like, What? Yes. Yeah, no, I got stuff dad. I'm gonna do. I'm yeah.
0: out here making stuff happen. Yeah, I started a radio program. By the way,
3: it's kind of true when he talks about um, like old people talk about their operations. Yeah, <laughs> he's not talking about his operations. <laughs> no. He's talking about going to Iraq. Yeah, he said one one little thing that he said that stood out to me when he was like, "Oh yeah, they throw you over the." T- over the deck or whatever in the water and to see if you're claustrophobic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The casual way that yeah, he yeah. said that whatever. was like, oh, they go oh, because they just want to see if yeah. they're claustrophobic. you, know, or you know the suit that he's talking about? I'm assuming it's the old school yeah, with the big ass thing like
0: 20,000 <laughs>
3: leagues under the sea scenario. <laughs> I you know what I'm saying? A claustrophobic uh, in the bottom of the bay. Yeah, that seems like a way bigger deal than his tone yeah, was when yeah. he said it.
0: Seems like not a lot of stuff was a big deal for it didn't Bill seem Posey. Like a big deal. He was yeah. just jumping out of helicopters, <laughs> hooking in Apollo Twelve, yep. going on patrol with, with thirty. Oh, by the way, dropping danger close napalm. Yeah, napalm that luckily happened to be there yeah. as you were about to get overrun.
3: Whatever. Yeah. Watching the, the guys rolling up
0: high. to Baghdad, landing jumping out of a freaking C one thirty that's going down a highway. What were you talking about? <laughs> no factor. He was like, Oh yeah, then this happened. Whatever. It's just
3: part of the ride he was on, really. You know? Man. Whole freaking
0: thing. awesome. Dang. Camp Jenny Posey. I can't I don't know if I can relay that enough what that what that name had to be to eh, it was this moment in time, right, that can never be recaptured, Camp Jenny Posey. That's crazy. Like, everyone that was at Camp Jenny Posey, oh, yeah, oh, you were at Posey? Like, it's a little thing. Yeah. yeah. Look, bro, I mean, I'm not trying to get crazy. We weren't freaking, you know, it wasn't the battle of the bulge, mm-hmm. but for the seals at that moment in time, it was pretty freaking awesome. Yeah. Pretty freaking awesome. Camp Jenny Posey, welcome home. Welcome home is what it said on that sign. Welcome home.
3: And that was Jenny Posey that and Jenny yeah Maybe by the way was. for
0: those of you that are just listening Jenny Posey was in the room you know because she had did end up graduating from Army or ROTC Man. and she was here laughing because I could see her she was posey. laughing at stories and, and and also you know she told me afterwards she never heard all these stories huh you know she never heard all these stories about Nam huh. about <laughs> getting thrown over the side into the into the damn bay know, to walk yeah. around for half an hour but You know, by, by, the, by the way that's an ignorant shit. test. That's like the witch test. That's like the witch test. We'll throw you in the water, and if you drown, then that means you're not a witch. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. But if
0: you survive, means you're a witch and we're gonna kill you. Check this out. Right. We wanna see if you're claustrophobic or if you like the water. So we're gonna throw you in the water. <laughs> yeah. What happens if you're not comfortable? Panic.
2: What are we doing then?
0: Yeah. Like you, you just freaking get all wrapped up in your, in, your, in your lines to the surface, and next thing you know, you got them lead boots up, I and mean, we got problems.
3: <laughs> Yeah, it seemed problematic.
0: Yeah. That's not like the safest test we got for our. Do they still do that? No. No. There'd be dead people all over the bay. (laughs) Can't be throwing people in the water. (laughs) Weights on That's only the Bill Posey freaking test. It's
2: brutal.
3: All
0: right. Well, so speaking of staying in the game long term, which is what we're looking to do. Yes. How can we stay in the game longer? Bill Posey style.
3: Okay, we want to keep ourselves capable. Capable in every way. Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, social.
0: When do we start throwing social into it's this part thing. of life. <laughs> okay. For real. You can keep that one.
3: For real, you need, like, <laughs> you need robust relationships. You do. Maybe not robust. <laughs> we'll just say healthy relationships. How about that? Either way, we're going to talk about the physical and mental. So you, you want to be exercising. We want to be exercising. We want to be doing jujitsu. Mm-hmm. We want to be eating mm-hmm. well. Here's the thing with eating well. It's really hard to get all the nutrients that you need. Okay. It's hard for real. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Even if you have a perfect diet in real life.
0: Which no one does. There's no such thing. Well, maybe there's some freaking uh, like Hollywood whatever that's up there that has like the personal chef and has the person coming in with the, you know, The kale from (laughs) fucking the kale from, you know, northern Bulgaria where it's grown without any uh, interference from man.
3: Right. And then steamed for like, you know, like 38.1. Yeah. At 17 degrees
0: Celsius. (laughs) Exactly. So So that
3: person might have a perfect diet. No, but and even then. But even though Unless they up. don't have a job. All well, that's their- what I'm
0: saying. Those people up in Hollywood, they don't have a job.
3: Yeah, they just sit there Yeah, and don't do anything.
0: No offense to my people in Hollywood, <laughs> but come on, let's get real. What well, about though? you know, it's, it's really hard being on the set all day. Shut up. <laughs> Bill Posey was getting thrown over a boat with a freaking hard hat helmet on yep. to wander around in the muck that's yep. been there for 150 years. That was hard. Yeah, that was that hard. Seemed hard. Yes, for being sure. Being on set? No. You get zero credit. Yeah, it's hard to compare the two. You get zero credit. Did Bill Posey get a fresh Bulgarian kale salad when he got out of the water?
3: No, no he didn't. <laughs> Negative. No. So Check. even right. if you, even we if you, this, even if you we do have a, a fresh Bulgarian kale salad mm-hmm. and everything else, perfect balanced meals mm-hmm. in whatever way you're balancing them, because we're all different in a lot of ways, very hard to get these the, the, all the nutrients that we need and want. Okay. Good news. Chocolate supplements. <laughs> good news. Supplementation for us. That was the w- longest with, freaking with hype. The, with the perfect ever. diet, a perfect diet or a not so perfect diet. Supplementation is going to get you way ahead of the game. Keep you in the game. That's what it's going to do. Mm-hmm. So what do we got? And what do we have them for? We got them for your joints, for your mind, for your body, and for your muscles directly. Joint warfare. Joint warfare. Crill oil. Super krill oil. These are for your joints. Like, okay, and this is going to be a big deal because if your joints fail you, you can be strong. You can be strong. You can be capable. You can run every day. Your joints start failing. You start bothering you or whatever. What
0: good is it having a 454 big blocker? You got a flat tire over
3: here. Exactly right. Right rear.
0: You know what I'm saying? Exactly. You're not going anywhere. Oh, yeah. Or you You can rev your engine a little bit, just like you can stand there and flex in the mirror, but you're not going (laughs) to be able to take anybody in a jujitsu match. Yeah. That's for sure. You got a bad wheel. It's true. It's absolutely true. So we need to have the. The the joints yeah. up to speed, let's oh, say. Yeah.
3: And trust me, I know I've I've experienced both
0: Well what what a true testament is, joint warfare, there's subscri- people that subscribe subscribe to joint warfare all the time. Yeah. And the feedback is awesome because people realize they go, Oh, maybe I don't need it anymore. Then they go a week and a half and they're they're like crackheads yeah. running back. Saying oh, yeah. subscribe, hit they want to have it and they don't want to miss it. All kinds of True. good stuff in that.
3: Also, vitamin D3. Yep. Okay, so look, maybe some of us work outside and we get, you know, sun. Mm-hmm. And then even then, I think you still might be lacking in vitamin D3. It's well, why, be roll why roll the dice? Why exactly. roll the You're dice? Why roll the dice? Don't well, roll the dice on your vitamin D. Nope. Get some. Easy. And there's teeny tiny ones. You know, some people, they don't like swallowing those big. Remember the old school? Uh, What is it? Freaking? Amino acids Mm. or whatever remember that those Mm -hmm. big ass horse Oh Yeah. 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 yeah, It's not like that. No teeny tiny easy money. You're good to go. Yeah, exactly. You're good to go. Also, for immunity along with the vitamin D3 is Cold War. Mm hmm. In these times, we're not sometimes our immune system. Sometimes it it needs a little attention, extra attention.
0: That's it. It's a good call.
3: It's true. We just got back from a trip. Mm-hmm. And that's sometimes that's the time where your immune system gonna need a little little spot sometimes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you got the you got the Cold War from Jocko Fuel. <laughs> also, <laughs> uh, protein in the form of dessert. It's called mulk. Yes, God, is there a it's new so flavor? Good. Okay, it's so th- good,
0: it's so ridiculous. We, we we just got to the we just got done with the muster, and I I don't know why I asked Jamie this. I got paranoid. But I was like, I was about to fly out and she was out there before getting everything set up and yeah. I text her, I was like, hey, do we have milk out there? And she's like, are you serious? Of course, <laughs> she's like, of course, we have milk. We have of yeah. milk. Essential. Dude, I was out there just just taking, cause they bought so beautiful. I showed up, they got a refrigerator in my room. There's milk in the refrigerator.
3: Hollywood guy over there. Yeah, Hollywood got guy. I was on salad. set all day, back off. Yeah, 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 no, no, no kale salad.
0: So, yeah, so I get there and there's milk and then there's milk and I was just well this is what I was doing. I was taking like the opening up the milk bottle and just mm-hmm. drinking a little bit of milk and pouring milk in there and shaking it. Yeah. It was so freaking good to go. Yep. It was a, such a game changer. You're on They're the totally road s- and you're you're just eating clean so legit get yourself some milk. yeah and by the way right now i've been on peanut butter the chocolate peanut butter cup yeah. for uh, like probably a month right now and i got yeah. everything i start, I'm looking at my cupboard and i'm like thinking could it be mint could it be mint could yep. it be strawberry maybe mm. a little vanilla granola and i just keep for the past month i've been grabbing that grabbing that chocolate peanut butter it's a reese's peanut butter milkshake
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> it's
0: that freaking good
3: yep same boat same boat oh so you're there
0: yeah all right. Uh,
3: so one of the one of our people at the muster mm-hmm. was thanking me mm-hmm. for whatever reason for the uh, milk, the raw milk, or oh, the yeah, one, yeah. the non flavored yeah, 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 one. Yeah, yeah. He was thanking me for that. I told him, "Hey man, you're welcome. It's yeah. no problem for me you know? <laughs> <laughs> to get that out." No, you know. So Brian, Pete, all oh, you guys, cool, cool. But you know, uh, you're yeah. welcome. Oh, so that's a good that's an interesting one, though. So. If, like, yeah, if you don't prefer, like, a flavor Mm -hmm. necessarily, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine, but hey, man, everybody's different. So, man, got that option. Is there a banana thing flavor coming out?
0: Banana. Banana is coming. A banana milk. I've obviously. Have you had it? Have you had the new? No. No, you're not. What's the the name?
3: Is there? You're not on the inside circle. circle,
0: Freaking good. Name, not confirmed yet, but we're getting there, and it should be out it's good man it's like a banana cream scenario yeah
3: see and that's the thing. so really freaking
0: like good that. yeah it's kind of ridiculous again you feel like you you feel like you're having a dessert straight up yeah. like that lately with that peanut now yesterday i did actually
3: uh, yesterday i had a mint yesterday i had a mint which was good to go so good. it's kind of like it's a, essentially a cheat code ah. it's one of those cheat codes all right we need
0: to move on. I, I starting to feel like we're in this weird tangent world where like yeah, you and I are getting you know, super hyped you on. You it. know why?
3: Because you're imagining drinking yeah. milk right now, and I understand. But so yeah, so get it for yourself. How about that? Get it at JockoFuel.com. You can get all this stuff. You can get. You can
0: get. Um, we have a drink too, by the way, mm-hmm. a beverage. Oh. When I was in Florida, we at the muster we we supplied. We'll say our people with the dismango, and mm-hmm. man. So good to go so good to go and then went to Wawa down there in Florida, mm-hmm. which is pretty freaking cool going in a Wawa Walk to the fridge. There you go. Yep. You can just there you go. It's like in Wawa yep. what, What's up with that? Cool. Yep. Here's the thing right now. There's people like oh, we're making a healthy energy drink bullshit <laughs> You're actually lying. Well, there's only one person that's making a yep. a, a healthy energy drink right now yep. Us we are yep. I guess there's only one team that's making a healthy energy drink right now. There's only one team that said, "You know what? We're not going to put a bunch of freaking chemicals in here to preserve this that are going to go in your body and preserve your body in some weird way." <laughs> that's what you do when you die. You go to a mortician and they preserve your body. Yep. They put those chemicals into the drink and say, "Oh, it's cool. It's good. Drink it." No, mm-hmm. we didn't do that. We pasteurize it. We pasteurize it. so We don't have to add any of those chemicals. Look at you know. I almost, I almost got sucked in. Almost got sucked. Some guy commented on some social media thing. Yeah. He was like, Oh, this uh, you know, just a standard he's trying to they he, me, right. trying to pitch, you know, some uh, you know, some supplement. It's the same as everything else. It's actually literally not the yeah, same as everything else. All you different. have to do is look at the ingredients and you realize, oh, it's actually not it's not even close to everything else. Yeah. Not even close. It's a totally different ball game. Yeah.
3: So if you're thinking that, you're wrong. You kind of I mean, and, you know, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. and you can kind of understand because when you think about it, try to exclude you, exclude yourself in what what this whole, you know, mm-hmm. discipline go thing. Mm-hmm. Exclude that. I, what? Pre- so I'm not a part pre- of it. Pretend it doesn't exist. How about that?
0: The drink doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
3: And let's say even you don't exist. Um, <laughs> okay. he cool. he has a point. That guy saying, oh, he's just like everything, you know, it's like everyone, everything else or whatever, you know, like, oh, yeah, just some peddling, some, you know, whatever. He he has no idea. He's the thing is, he's right, except now he's not right because you're not. But everyone else kind (laughs) of does that. You see what (laughs) I'm saying? So if I didn't exist as a human, this guy would be correct. Would be correct. Yes. So you (laughs) kind of like if he don't know, he just decayed you. You know what decayed means? No. Didn't know. Oh check. So if you did de- you know how you don't you know you didn't de- de- you got you get DK'd a lot actually. People don't know me. They just don't know. Oh yeah, and they're just like, Oh look
2: at that. Yeah, they just egg.
3: assume. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. just assume like everyone else. Like remember that time about the Warrior Kid book?
2: Oh. It was like yeah, on Twitter yeah, yeah. back yeah. in the day. Some guy yeah, some guy. Yeah, chimed in.
3: Yeah, like so I forget who posted it, but someone posted something saying, Oh yeah, like um, you know, uh where the Warrior Kid from Wimpy to Warrior, the Navy Seal Wimper, whatever. Right. And some professor or something mm-hmm. was like, "Oh, just another guy peddling toxic masculinity or something like this." Just, I'm paraphrasing, just an totally. Awesome comment. And he goes, "Uh, um, uh, sorry, I'll pass." Right? Like, didn't read oh, it. Look at you didn't, pulling the quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, didn't look into the whole thing, and everyone just piled up on him, saying, "Hey, essentially, bro, you're decaying." This mm-hmm. guy. It's not that. It's like whatever. My daughters read it like that mm-hmm. kind, and he was like, "Oh." Uh-uh. He was backpedaling or whatever, but totally decayed you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just another DK Isn't situation. is it weird,
0: though, that someone would make that move? Like, like, let's face it. What's a good lesson to learn when you're a kid that almost everybody learns? Don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah. Almost everybody does learns that lesson, and here's a guy that double violated that. Number one, looking at me and judging the book by its cover, and yeah. then number two, straight up <laughs> judging the book
3: by its cover, literally. straight
0: up literally doing that. Yeah. And this guy's a professor, professor who's you know uh, a liberal guy because I you know who is this guy? And he's some super liberal guy. Look, I get all kinds of liberal people that read the books. Yeah. No factor. They're like, oh yeah, this guy's an open mind. Cool. Just decayed me. Yeah. Twice, yeah, it, but even worse, broke the act, broke the, f- broke the metaphorical rule, yep. and broke the straight up real literal
3: rule. Broken right there for. He should have got two see. L's in his column, right? <laughs> loser, Just, loser, yep. double up. Yeah, yeah, fully, and yeah, being liberal or not liberal, that wasn't in this case the violation. It was him no, who that cares if ignorant, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. that was the violation. If yeah. he was
0: a super liberal guy that read the book and was like, hey, I think that the way you portray i Z, I'd be like, okay, cool, mm-hmm. yeah, that's yep. good Good feedback. I need to pay attention
3: to that. It's true. Well, you know, So yeah, so you hey, look, so for future reference, mm-hmm. you will get decayed in the future as well. Yeah, and yeah. this energy drink situation, he just decayed you, it's all, it's all good, bro, it's yeah, all good. Look
0: at the the ingredients are filtered carbonated water, natural flavor, citric acid, monk fruit extract. That's the that's the ingredients. Now look, are there there are other ingredients that are like the supplement part, vitamin right. B12, vitamin B6, like caffeine, alpha gpc. Like those are real ingredients that are in there, but they're yeah. supplemental. They're good for you. Yeah. The bad, where's the bad for you ingredients on here? There are none. There you go. That's the way they should do. Like That should be the new labeling system, right? What? There should be two columns. Good for you, bad for you.
3: <laughs> that might be too, right? much,
0: too much reality. For it's too much reality, but that's people. the way it should be. Because people yeah. don't know. It's true. People right? don't know that, that that all those chemicals that are getting put in there, they should be in the bad for you column, Yeah. by the way.
3: Yeah, kind of like cigarettes. Yeah, No cigarettes, they say, hey, you can get cancer from yeah.
0: this. They, they should just have one column that says this. Left side makes you strong, right side makes you weak.
3: Yep, exactly right.
0: Kills you, poisons you. Check.
3: Yeah, All right. It's true, <clears throat> <Speaking>. so yes.
0: <laughs> all right, uh, so Wawa, you can get the drinks at Wawa. You can get all the stuff at Vitamin Shop. you can get all the stuff at jockofuel.com and also, kind of important, if you subscribe, if you subscribe to whatever it is you want, the shipping is free, because we don't want you to have to pay for shipping. So if you subscribe, Shipping is free because we know that there's other organizations out there that Mm -hmm. offer free shipping. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure you have the option. If you don't want to go through those big organizations, but you still want to get free shipping, we got you covered.
3: We got you covered. No factor. It's a big deal, man. Free shipping. Seems small. It's a big deal. Mm -hmm. And you don't forget to take your stuff or you don't run out. You don't run the risk of running out. That's a big deal, too. Mm -hmm. By the way, take it from me. I've been there. Also, you can get it at or, uh, originusa.com <clears throat> and also at originusa.com. You can get American made stuff. Jiu jitsu geese. For sure. Jeans. American made denim. Boots. I have your boots, by the way, still.
0: They're not my boots. are your boots. They're no, mine, now. They're our
3: boots. But here's the thing I have some. Oh, some the boots that you brought home. So those are my boots. Yes. Yeah. You
2: Literally didn't bring them today. No, Apparently, didn't. you didn't bring them today.
3: Well, my son was trying to wear them. That's and awesome. And I was like, Okay, cool, he wanted to walk a mile in your shoes, literally. Check. American-made shoes. Um, also, yeah, denim, boots, uh, belts, oh, wait wait, are they doing belts or are they doing yes. wallets?
0: Yes, belts, wallets, so, yeah. boots. All made in America. All made in America, All. 100%, Yeah, 100% without compromise. Do you know how hard it is when you say without compromise on the end of something? Especially yeah. something like making stuff in America? That's yeah. a big, bold statement, because yeah. there's like a rivet for a pair of jeans. Yeah. And everybody's like, cool, yeah, we get rivets from China. Oh, good
3: to go. Yeah, yeah. cool. That's negligible. No know, big whatever. deal. No, no big deal.
0: We're not worried about those particular slave labor elements that are working in a sweatshop. <laughs> We're not worried about them because yeah. it's rivets and we need them. Yep. They, that's the easy thing to do. Look, we got most of the jeans made in America. We Look, most of our stuff is made by Americans that are actually, actually enjoying their job. Mm. We got most of our parts not made by slave labor. That's kind of cool, right? Yeah.
3: No, it's actually not cool. That's actually a good point. Like, how you're like the rivets. They seem small. They but seem it's small. Small. Oh, it's small. So it's it. it kind of yeah, until makes you're a 12 year old kid <laughs> getting freaking <laughs> beaten. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> in a factory,
0: 18 <laughs> yeah. hours a day. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Get yourself those other. Get yourself those other jeans. <laughs>
3: Savages, man. <laughs> so yes. If if hey look, if this kind of stuff interests you want you want this kind of stuff, originusa.com. Also, Jocko is a store. It's called Jocko Store. So go to jockostore.com. This is where you can get your Discipline Equals Freedom shirts, hats, hoodies. This is also this is h- higher quality stuff. This is not ballpark giveaway free quality stuff. It's high quality stuff. <laughs> Trust me. I know that too. Also, we have a subscription situation too called the shirt locker. So, you get a new shirt every month. Free shipping on that one as well. The designs are more creative, more fun. You got to trust me on that one. Because, like, if you're, if you're like, hey, prove it. And then, like, you look at it and you're like, oh, you're right. Oh, it's too late already. You don't get that shirt anymore.
0: I will say, at the muster, when I yeah. saw our people with some shirt locker shirts on. I felt I felt a little extra like connection. I, I felt the same way. Exactly right. <laughs> kind of a little extra connection. Oh, yeah. We know they're like look, we get we get there in the game, but then when you
3: see that you're like, oh they're in the game. In the game. In the game. And looking to be full way. support. Yep. So yes, check it out. jocklestore.com If you like something,
0: get something. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't forget about other podcasts that we have. Jocko unraveling with Daryl Cooper. Daryl Cooper just dropped the new martyr made podcast. Yeah, Okay, no, so you can, you can go check that out. I think we, he and I had prepped to do a podcast and then we ended up not doing that particular one for the unraveling. And then I think he just kind of took some of that and went, cr- went deep on it, which mm-hmm. as you know, DC can go deep on some stuff. <laughs> so, so check out Jocko <laughs> unraveling, check out martyr made, check out, grounded podcast which Dean List we got to do some recording with him and the Warrior Kid podcast. We also have the the jockounderground.com. So look, we don't know what's going to happen with any of these platforms is the bottom line. We we could get cut off for whatever reason. We could get ads imposed on us from other things that we don't necessarily want to be doing advertisements for. There's all kinds of things that can happen. We realize this. We need to have a contingency plan. We we built the structure for a our own platform if we need to do it. So if if people if all of a sudden things get crazy, we will be standing by. We'll be on the if you want to help us out with that so that we never have to rely on anyone else and we don't have to have we don't have to do ad reads in the middle of a freaking podcast, mm-hmm. right? Hey, Warren Officer Posey, you're telling us about what it was like in Vietnam. Hold on a second, I'm gonna talk about a new whatever.
3: Right after these messages.
0: Yeah, right after these messages, you can tell us what it was like.
3: Yeah.
0: No, we're not doing that. Mm. So if you wanna help out, $8.18 a month. If you can't afford it, we, that doesn't mean we don't want you in the game. We want you in the game. You can go to you can email assistance at jockawonderground.com. And so we're releasing one podcast a week where we kinda do a little, Topics that are, we'll say related to, but not quite the normal topic for Jocko Podcast. It's Mm -hmm. it's more of like an expansion, more in depth. Mm -hmm. So you can check out that, and we also have a YouTube channel that you can subscribe to if you wanna see uh, some of the stuff. A lot of these things, I'm the assistant director on. Sure. Most of the good ones, I'm the assistant director on. They're all
3: good. No. Maybe some people. They're not all good? Okay.
0: All right. Uh, Subscribe to that YouTube channel. Also, Origin USA has a YouTube channel. You can check that out as well.
3: Yep. Also, Psychological Warfare. You don't know what that is. (laughs) It's not on the YouTube channel. But it is an album, a Jocko album with tracks. And each track helps you get through an individual moment of weakness that you might have. And we all have them from time to time. Bro, I had one the other day. Not yesterday. Day before. Wait, was it yesterday? Yeah, day before yesterday. Yep. But you know how like, yeah, you're the one who, do, who did this. Where if you have a moment of weakness and you get past it, you got to punish yourself for having the moment of weakness. Yeah. So you got to add on. What do you add? Yeah. Like a set or a ten percent? Could be a set. Could freaking, be ten percent. Could be some
0: burpees. Some... Could be starve yourself for fourteen hours. I don't know.
3: But somebody got to pay for that. Hey,
0: man, those chocolate chip chocolate chip cookies were good to go. And I'm fasting tomorrow. What
3: you got to pay for that? And yeah, so man, that happened
0: to me. What was the moment?
3: I wanted to skip the workout. Actually, didn't want to skip it. I was into it. I I warmed up. You know the kind where it's like, hey, if I just start warming up, I'm gonna be in the workout. Yeah. It was harder than that. The moment of weakness was bigger and more robust Mm -hmm. than that. I warmed up. (laughs) I did like two good sets and I was like, kind of like, hey, I did those two solid sets right there. So if I don't do the second half of this workout, we kind of go. I can just finish these sets and be done, you know? Yeah. So I was like, oh man. So I got through it. I said, eh, no, I didn't. I did the whole workout. Yeah. And then as a punishment, I had to do a Metcon. There you go. And I doubled up on the Metcon too. Bang. Yeah.
0: Check. Right on. You can get that from uh, anywhere you get MP3s. Also, if you want to hang something up on your wall, you can go to flipsidecanvas.com. Dakota Meyer, my brother, is making all kinds of cool stuff to hang on your wall. Also, I got a bunch of books. We have final spin coming. Final spin coming. I wrote a, I wrote a book. Could be novel. Could be, could be some other format of reading, of writing. Could be poetry with a mixture of prose, with a mixture of, of transcripts of human beings talking. That basically, yeah. I made my own form up. Yeah. Am I allowed to do that? Uh, at I this don't point, know, I think But so. I guess I yeah. did. Um, story, it's available now for pre order if you want to get that first edition. When does it come out? Come November out? 16th is when it comes out. Here's the thing you know what the publisher's saying? The publisher's like, well, you know, you're kind of a guy that writes about wiener camps. And we don't know. <laughs> right? Big question, you question know. mark. Yeah, big question mark. We're not sure if your people that listen to you, your podcast will actually want to read some kind of a weird novel from mm. you. It's like, okay, cool. It's true. So they're not going to print enough and then people are going to order it when it, you know in on, on November 14th they're going to be like, "Oh cool, I want to get a copy." They're going to end up with a second a dish. Mm. And there's no Little. this is not a redeemable situation. No. You know, you make some decisions in life you can never go back from. Like yeah. you get a tattoo on your forehead. Seemed like a good idea, right? <laughs> But you can't so go back from that, yeah. right? You can't go back from that. It's Very there hard, yeah. now. You could go get it removed, then you got a scar on your forehead. Either that, way, that we're not thinking that that's the 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 move that we can go back from. Yes, we sir. can't return. Hey, you go out drinking, and you decide you're going to go for a drive afterwards. You get a DUI. There's no, you don't you go like, hey, hey, officer, yeah. you know what? Let's hit rewind.
2: Right,
0: you can't do that. Yeah. You show up. i you know, you come to the muster, you come to Jonko Live, you roll up. You got that you got the, you got that copy of Final Spin and you're like, I'd really like to get this signed. I open it up. I'm gonna sign it. I'm gonna sign it. Like, <laughs> cool, man, I appreciate it. Yeah. But then I see the second edition down there. And I'm sorta of knowing
3: yeah, Brutal.
0: I'm sort of seeing where you're at, you yeah. know? I'm sort of seeing where we're at. Dang. You know? I'm sorta of seeing where we're at. I know Understand. that at the moment of truth, you were kinda of like, well, and now yep. you can't you can't walk back that decision again. Yeah. You can work through it, right? You're yeah. still going to go out. You can wear a hat if you got the tattoo on your forehead. You got the DUI. You're going to go through the classes so you can recover and get your license back. Yeah, you can do right? the best you can. You're going to do the best sure. you can, but yeah. you still got that scarlet letter.
2: Yeah, I got the scarlet
0: letter. Second yeah. edition. Don't let it happen to you yeah. out there. Don't let it happen to you. All right, we got leadership strategy and tactics. We got the code, the, the evaluation, the protocol, discipline, equals freedom field manual, brand new versions. Been out for a little bit now. Way the Warrior Kid, one, two, three, and four. Mikey and the Dragons, often called the best children's book ever written. Sure. That's what a lot of people call it. Yeah, I, I mean, dig it. At least quite a few of them. I agree. Uh, About Face by Hackworth. And then the OG, Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership. We got Echelon Front, which is a, my leadership consulting company. We solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com. We have EFOnline.com. On there, we have courses on there. We have leadership courses on there. We're doing live Q and A all the time. If you want to improve, look, leadership is not an inoculation. You don't get a shot. You don't read Extreme Ownership one time and be like, oh, cool, I'm good to go. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen to anybody. You need to reinforce those learnings. You need to expand your knowledge. How do you do that? Efonline.com. Go get it. Muster. We just got done with Orlando. Freaking awesome. We got Phoenix, August 17th and 18th. Las Vegas, 28th and 29th. Check Extreme If you wanna come to that, do it quick. They're selling out. EF Battlefield, we go walk the battlefields and go through leadership lessons learned. I'll let you know when the next one of those is coming up. And if you want to help service members, active and retired, their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She has a charity organization. She does all kinds of things to help veterans. One of the major things that she does is she gets them medical treatments that might not be covered by the VA or by the military medical system. One of the big ones is Hyperbaric Chamber. Sending guys out for 30 days to get multiple iterations of that type of treatment and it's extremely helpful for people. A bunch of my friends have gotten it. It's been awesome. If you want to help, you want to donate, or you want to get involved, go to AmericasMightyWarriors.org. And if you want more of my nagging narratives or you need more of Echo's vexing vocals, you can find us on the interwebs, on Twitter, on the gram, and on that ah, Facebook. Boah. Echo is at Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks once again to Bill Posey. What a, what an awesome opportunity to sit down. Thank you for everything you did for America and everything you did for the teams. hoo ya, Warren Officer Posey. And to the rest of our uniform personnel out there, Thank you for what you do to keep us free. And to our veterans, thank you for your service and sacrifice. And also to our police and law enforcement, our firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, and all the first responders. You all work hard every day, every single day to keep us safe. Thank you for what you do day in and day out for us and to everyone else out there. Remember what Bill Posey had to say Remember he said if you can think if you can think you're dangerous If you can think you're dangerous stay dangerous Stay dangerous age apparently Age is a number And you can go hard and you can keep going and we all have more to give so I say we step up and Give it And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko.